Oh, good evening. I have always been deathly afraid of painting myself into a corner, but my precautions have been useless. You see, I now remember that this door I've been backing toward is a closet. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. I'm your host, Zach Eastman. We're back. Uh, it's been a while. Um, I I wish I could say it was for a, a, an amazing reason, like I got caught up in a spy caper or I stole some money and had to stop off at a motel and then was proceeded to be butchered in a shower. Um, I, I wish I could say that I was trying to get rid of a body uh, in the middle of uh, the East Coast forest, but I, I wasn't. I was actually out making a movie. Um, and also getting involved in some other projects. And uh, there was a period where I had to take a break from Hitchcock, but it proved productive because I was able to fall back in love with the Master of Suspense and studying him. And uh, this this break from studying the Master of Suspense has been most successful in the regard that I have been able to now uh, coalesce my thoughts on this series as a whole. Um this started off as an experiment initially to see what kind of form and uh, function this show would take. Um, as we, as it turns out, we've been discussing many different topics about Alfred Hitchcock, uh, whether it's his collaborations, uh, his meticulous detail. Um, we broke down the entirety of Psycho in order to fully understand his approach to suspense and surprise, as well as his marketing technique. Um, we managed to discuss rear uh r rope and more than once actually we we discussed rope more than once and uh managed to also talk about different themes within hitchcock's work and also talk about his humorous side in that respect uh we also touched a little bit on uh the gainsborough uh british gamo period which i do believe we're going to be examining further as this series goes on um but the bottom line is is that there has been no organization or structure primarily because the nature of how I'm able to do this podcast requires me to record episodes when they become available with whether it's the guest or the subject uh, at hand. So in that respect, we're going to keep that tradition going because I like the mix up and the kind of randomization of topics. You never know what kind of topic you're going to get each week on Shamley Silhouette. Um, obviously, if I go to another director, this will be ordered much differently and probably with a little bit more uh, fine tooth comb in terms of structure. Uh, but in the weeks to come or even months to come, you're going to be watching us uh, continue to break down the films of Hitchcock, hopefully being able to mention everything in his oeuvre at least once and talk a little bit about it, uh, if not a lot about it. Um, and we're also going to, uh, within that uh, frame, wrap up uh, not only with the final film of Alfred Hitchcock's, which was Family Plot, but we'll also uh, probably end up being, uh, we'll, we'll have a little bit of a celebration episode at the end of all of this. Uh, to talk about um, our favorite Hitchcock films, where I'll bring back some guests and we'll basically do uh, what real nerds do, which is a film explosion, but we'll do a mini version of it. Um, and in addition, we will also be talking about 
Hitchcock in the realm of imitators, uh, people who have homaged him successfully, and also the the overall impact of his work on today's generation, as we kind of do every week on the show, but in a little bit more of an elongated form. Uh, so this this will end as kind of like a mixtape of Hitchcock. Um, but to bring us back into the world of Hitchcock, um, we've talked a lot about success on this show, whether it's uh, uh, the success that Hitchcock feels personally or the the success that uh, a, an amphetamine addict named David O. Selznick felt personally um, or just the success in general of these pictures. We talk about a lot of classics. Uh, so I thought it would be only fair to re-enter the world of Shamley Silhouette by talking about failure, um, which seems like an apt topic for everybody. Everybody feels like they failed. Everybody feels like they never fully got to um, achieve anything. Um, and Hitchcock obviously achieved a lot. But like anybody, he has his moments. Um, and we're going to be talking about three films today that, while still considered among classics in, in their own way, uh, are certainly overlooked. Um, you could say they're Overlook. Um, they're the Overlook Hitched Hell. Ha, ha. Because I, I liked Dr. Sleep, guys. Um, but uh, no, they're, they are films that are overlooked in the oeuvre in terms of their importance. Um, but yet, uh, they are constantly part of different collections, uh, whether on the bootleg end or the studio end. Uh, and they do end up coming up in discussions, albeit mostly in a negative term. Uh, but as we're going to find out today, there may be some appreciation to have in these um, overlooked uh, Hitchcock works. Uh, here to discuss this with me, I have decided to bring back the guy who talked with me for three hours on Psycho. <laughs> and in the process, nearly drove us all mad. Not because of him, but because we both got enveloped in the madness. Um, but you will recognize his voice as soon as you hear him. Please welcome back Marshall Rosales. Hello. You're, you're ready to get back into the fold. And I give you three films now. So this, this show is going to be ten hours long. <laughs> I'm set. I asked for some coffee beforehand, so yeah. I'm good to go the distance. We're going to break it down. We're going to break it down. So uh, before we get started, obviously we already talked about your introduction to Hitchcock mm -hmm. uh, in the Psycho episode. But uh, within what we're about to talk about right now, um, we live in a generation i'd like to say that um is a little bit more immediately reactive when it comes to failure in the industry um, yes uh, most certainly if something doesn't click with an audience even if you are an established director or an actor or whatnot it can put you in a hot seat pretty quickly um not to bring up our star wars conversation from before <laughs> recording again but um there was a director named Tra colin trevorrow who was supposed to do episode nine of of this new trilogy uh, that ended up being being sacked, and amongst the theories as to why he was let go, other than apparently his behavior with Kathleen Kennedy, whatever it may be, uh, he also did not have any help uh, in the department of the failure of his film Book of Henry, which uh, certainly uh, proved to be a good reason in the press. But you also have other directors like Josh Trank who fall into big, colossal production failures and then are given very little leeway to carry on with their career. Um, but what's interesting about what we're going to be talking about is that this is a guy who was legendary yes. and he had already established himself so much that we kind of just kept him going. Do you think that that kind of leeway would be given to him today? Well, I think, <laughs> mm, yes, I think, I think if you hold him, if you consider him as like a Spielberg or a Scorsese, um, that someone that is 
not only been around as long as they have been or as around as long as Hitch was, um, but also was throwing out movies as often as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like, especially if you look at the last 10 years or so, I don't think that people could name Spielberg or Scorsese's, like, um, filmography the same way that they could 10 years ago mm-hmm. uh, in the last 10 years. They're still putting out movies and they're still producing a lot, but they just don't seem to be, like, hitting the same way that mm-hmm. they did and yet they're kind of still going on the rep- the reputation precedes them and also i think that like by and large not that any of hitchcock's movies were cheap but he was an efficient filmmaker yet yeah. nine times out of ten the studio was still going to make its money back yeah and his his name brought something you know to yeah. the table and it had a cachet and much like a spielberg hitchcock had a reputation outside of film with the television show and just his public persona in general, or the, um, the, the, uh, the, um, I, I sometimes call it the imaginary Hitchcock and it more or less is just like, he's just always ready to show up with a joke and whatnot. Like it's the one that we see in the silhouette and the different posters and advertising for his films and the television show at large. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within a respect, I mean, he never did any producing like far outside of his own realm, like uh, like a Spielberg does with Amblin or uh, even Martin Scorsese with his work in art house film and world cinema project. Right. But you do have that reliability. So, yes. And I actually I I do agree, because if he it it, it may be a situation, I don't know if he'd ever go to Netflix, like because I don't think he would ever know how to. handle netflix but um yeah maybe i don't know Uh, he might really enjoy it though too depending i guess depending on which netflix version of netflix he got yeah like the one that just leaves him alone and they do whatever he wants yeah the the one that is the scorsese version of (laughs) netflix is what you're talking about (laughs) yes well well, that young that that young hyped up energetic man with the glasses got to do it why can't i (laughs) oh i love glow let's watch glow alma I like to think that he watched Glow. Oh, for sure. He didn't watch. He's not a Stranger Things guy. Glow, though, Mm -mm. totally envelops him. End of the fucking world. He probably liked too because he's just like, ha, I used the word fuck. But um, (laughs) um, that's I mean, again, this this version of Hitchcock I have in my head really likes curse words. Um, But in in the sense that he uh, now the 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 thing that we have to observe with um, at least two of the films that we'll be talking about today, they come in a later period of Hitchcock, mm-hmm. which a lot of these directors that we were just mentioning are in their later period. So their 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 golden years are behind them, if you want to call it that. Um, I think Spielberg manages to output more successes than he does failures, but they don't. They'll take if they're going to hit in the legacy standpoint, they're going to take a little longer to do so. Like yes. I think Bridge of Spies is. Uh, a, a masterwork uh, within that respect, but then you have some stuff around that that's not particularly wonderful. Right. Um, and then uh, Scorsese, I think he hit a peak with The Irishman that I don't think. I think if he was going to end his career, this might be the best way to do it because hmm. it it it's a reckoning for him um, and it's a masterwork. If you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix. Um, but uh, with Hitchcock, uh, he much like these directors is also coming to a point where the industry's changing. And we have a lot of change coming through our end as well. So uh, looking at these uh, three different films, we'll kind of see how things kind of progress and change. With the first film, I think that there's a little bit less um, emphasis on a changing industry, but more the fact that Hitchcock is transitioning from British cinema to American cinema. And that in itself is kind of a change because the industry in Britain is going to change drastically because of the war and then what happens afterwards within that effect. Um, so I think it would be best to mention that uh, the three films we are going to be talking about, uh, sp- 
uh, they we have a starting point in the 1930s and then we jump ahead to the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of background. Uh, the first film we'll be talking about uh, takes place just before Hitchcock leaves for America to work for David O. Selznick. Uh, and then as we move into the latter two films, we see him post his biggest triumph and success with Psycho and then also post the disappointment and failure of Marnie, um, which... Uh, Marnie and the birds will probably have to be discussed together in order to kind of break down what becomes of Hitchcock in the Whoa. films that we're going to talk about. Cause, That'll be fun. Oh yeah, I, I I'm still trying to figure out an episode for Marnie's that. a trip, man. Yeah, Marnie's Marnie's a tough Marnie's a tough one to discuss, uh, and it, but it will be discussed because it can't be ignored. No, um, it certainly cannot be ignored. Um, but anyway, um, we'll kind of dive right into it right now. We're going to start. Uh, with a adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier uh, novel called Jamaica Inn. Now, some listeners might be asking themselves, what the fuck is Jamaica Inn? That's not a Hitchcock movie. Well, you'd be wrong. It is. <laughs> um, and I think in order to understand Jamaica Inn a little bit, you have to understand the person who was truly behind that movie, which is not Hitchcock. It is uh, one of none other than Charles Lawton. <laughs> yes. Uh, Charles Lawton. Uh, Noted actor and then turned director for one film that is considered amongst many filmgoers a classic. It's called Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum. Uh, if you've not seen the Night of the Hunter, check it out on Criterion. Like right now. Yeah, like immediately. Like there's a lot of things that people love about films that are in Night of the Hunter and come from Night of the Hunter. Yes. Uh, even if it's just the references of love and hate tattooed on your knuckles. Or, or in the case of one of my favorite films, Do the Right Thing. They are really nice brass knuckles um, (laughs) and nice bling. Yes, and I would also say that uh, as much as uh, Tim Burton has to um, kind of uh, lean on, like, Cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari. Caligari. That one. Yes. um, (laughs) Also, just Night of the Hunter, just through and through. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot that uh, Burton draws on from that, most certainly. And I think that uh, Scorsese... Scorsese draws a lot from, um, uh, I think, that film in particular. Um, not all the time, but, like, I mean, obviously he certainly does with Cape Fear. I think there's a, a definite oh God, yes. um, a- emphasis with Cape Fear in terms of utilizing stuff from Night of the Hunter, um, and uh, not the least of which it's all tangentially tied to Robert Mitchum in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Charles Lawton um, was... he's had a He had a very interesting trajectory. Um, he was a big success... Uh, he won an Oscar early on for playing King Henry, and he was at a place where he was trying to remind people that he won an Oscar, and so he was very focused on Jamaica Inn as a way to present that and then upend it. Um, amongst the things he does is in, uh, put uh, a young Maureen O'Hara under contract uh, and cast her in the lead role in Jamaica Inn, and uh, Hitchcock's involvement comes primarily because he really wants to adapt Rebecca, and there's a thought process in Hitchcock's head. Well, if I can adapt Jamaica in and impress De Maurier, maybe I'll get to do Rebecca or maybe she'll uh, uh, give me the rights to do it. Now, because right, De Maurier did wrote the book for Rebecca and another Hitchcock film also, right? Uh, yes, she wrote the short story that ended up becoming The Birds. Yes, that's yes. right. So uh, Hitchcock has a long history with De Maurier, um, both in success and in uh, failure. Although Jamaica in... Uh, before we jump into the plot a little bit, it is worthy of noting that it wasn't a uh, a, a huge failure. Like it was not uh, what you would call a um, 
uh, like an outright flop. Uh, it got it did gain a large profit, three point seven million at the U.S. box office, and uh, it was a that's a big success at the time. Um, but uh, it, critics had issues with it, and um, as we'll learn throughout the course of Jamaica Inn, it's fair to point out that Hitchcock is being superseded by a larger ego in the room, which is Charles Lawton. Oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. And I think and that then some. oh yeah, and there's and there's a lot uh, to. Uh, there's a lot to call out in the film if you're a, a Hitchcock purist as, well, this is clearly not him, this is clearly not him, but then you can notice where it is him. Um, and, and this is a situation where Hitchcock is forced to ve very much focus more on the technical acumen than he does have to do with the characters. Um, and Charles Lawton, being the force of nature that he was, automatically clashes with the ideas that Hitchcock has, which is the, the actor is subservient to my camera. Um, and if you watch the film, Lawton is clearly not giving a fuck where the camera is. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. And you kind of have to cut around that to a certain respect. Although in rewatching the film today, I did notice that he, he's a lot more adherent to it than some other actors in Hitchcock's, uh, oeuvre who disappointed him in that end. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> where I noticed the, I mean, cause I watched the film first and then I sort of educated myself about it. And where I noticed the conflict come the most was actually in um, the story structure and the script mm -hmm. um, in just in how much more um, Mr. Uh, Lawton wanted to be on screen mm -hmm. really imbalanced the script and then by nature the story and then by nature the experience of watching the film. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that Lawton's uh, Sir Humphrey Pingallon isn't <laughs> incredible to watch. It yeah. is like, it is, that character is amazing and mm -hmm. is a joy from the moment that you first see him on, on screen. And in, in essence, he is a true Hitchcockian character into a certain point because he is insane. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's insane, he's wonderful, and I think that... Um, for anyone who is uh, in is versed in the um, filmography of John Candy, mm -hmm. you're gonna see a lot of John Candy in in Lawton's performance. <laughs> in that. It's just like it's just very, uh, you know, if you could imagine a little bit of an older and British Uncle Buck. Uh, and maybe a little bit more sinister than Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck's pretty sweet. But, I, uh, <laughs> I would love to watch Charles Lawton make huge pancakes. That'd be <laughs> fucking amazing. Yes, exactly. You know, I just thought I'd steal some stuff from some ships, cause some actual wrecks, murder some people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot do a John Candy. I'm very sorry. And, and Nor should anybody try to. No. That man was a treasure on his own. Yes. Um, we'll actually go through real quick uh, the, the uh, caliber of people that are involved in the picture because uh, it's not just... Lawton and Maureen O'Hara and Hitchcock. You also have, amongst other things, uh, uh, Sidney Gillette, Joan Harrison, Alma Revel, and J.B. Priestley all have a writing uh, job on this film to some extent or another. Uh, Joan Harrison, who was Hitchcock's uh, assistant, who went on to write and produce some of Hitchcock's films and then ended up being a big part of the Hitchcock uh, television show Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, Sidney Gillette, uh, a regular amongst that stock, uh, and J.B. Priestley, who's a noted English author. And then, of course, Alma Revel, uh, Mrs. Hitchcock, uh, who undoubtedly probably polished this up enough to be presentable because <laughs> um, that was as as was her primary function uh, amongst other many, many jobs that she had to do on Hitchcock films. Uh, again, she will get her own episode. I fucking promise. 
Um, but you also have uh, uh, returning people to the Hitchcock stable. You have Leslie Banks, uh, who was in The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original one. Uh, and he gets to play a much more interesting character in this film. He's great in this. Oh, yeah. He's absolutely wonderful. Um, you... Uh, you have a you have a slew of different people from different Hitchcock films in that respect, not the least of which um, I want to make sure I get his name right. Wiley Watson. Uh, Wiley Watson was uh, the person with the numbers in his head in the thirty nine steps um, or the, the 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 formula. He's got the MacGuffin in his hands, essentially uh, the thing that does not matter, but is essential to our characters getting to where they need to go. Who was um, he in Jamaica in? Uh, in Jamaica Inn, uh, he played uh, Salvation, Salvation Watkins. Um, he's one of the guys who I believe he's the one who is telling them that they're all going to hell. <laughs> um, oh, that guy, okay. yeah. Awesome. Um, so, uh, yeah. And so we should jump into the plot right now. Um, the film set in 1819 uh, takes place off the, off the Cornish coast. Uh, it's about a group of cutthroats and thieves who intentionally cause shipwrecks. Uh, in order to plunder them and then kill everybody on the scene so that nobody can call them out later. This is um, a prequel to The Fog. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up. I was hoping to God that John Carpenter at some point in the right. commentary for The Fog would tell me, yeah, this is just a sequel to Jamaica Inn. As it turns out, it is not. Um, the, the, the happenings going on on the Cornish coast and uh, 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 the thievery that's going on uh, all culminates back to the Jamaica Inn where everybody hides out. Um, you have Leslie Banks uh, as uh, Joss Merlin, who is basically their leader for the most part. Um, he uh, lives with his wife, Patience, uh, which is a wonderful name for a wife character, like very on the nose. Especially that wife. Very, character. very on the nose. Uh, yes. uh, and um, uh, they they are unaware that Patience's niece... Young uh, Mary, played by Maureen, o uh, Maureen O'Hara, is coming to basically live with them because her mother died. But they didn't get any letters, so <laughs> like this is kind of just like, well, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't get your note, but no, <laughs> go <Yeah>. home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go back to. Do you know I got murderers in the house? <laughs> right, <laughs> but you can't. But you can't tell them that, obviously. But um, amidst all this, you find out that Charles Lawton. As Sir Humphrey Pengallen is the actual ringleader of uh, Joss's group. Um, he is a city official um, or a, a, what would you call him? A, uh, a squire, like a, a country, a county squire or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that's, I believe his title is squire. Yeah, exactly. So he's kind of like managing the properties around it and whatnot. And yeah, like he, it seemed regarded very much like a mayor. Yeah, like a, a mayor. slash judge or something like that. Yeah, or a magistrate of some sort. And like also kind of like a landlord. Like he's kind of like monitoring the whole area. But secretly, he's encouraging murder and stealing. Um, which, a fun fact, uh, in the original book, it's supposed to be a clergyman. Yes. And this has changed because the censors at the time said that no religious figures could have that negative connotation attached to them, which seems like it would have actually been even better for Hitchcock to work with because he would have been able to play with the religious iconography and also the duality of the morality versus the pious religious aspects of it. Um, you can see this more evidenced in the movie I Confess, um, but this would have been a better sandbox for him to play in at the very least on that notion alone. I think that, yeah, I think that from a, like, from from what you're talking about, I think it would have been interesting to see that. However, for this film, 
being like the fact that Pengallen wasn't clergy, mm-hmm. I think allowed there to be a little bit more of an overt uh, sexual creepiness to the character yeah. towards um, Mary Ellen, mm-hmm. um, Maureen O'Hara's character. Yeah. And, and that it seemed like he was always pining on her. Yeah. And he was kind of breaking his own rules and stretching the boundaries of what he normally would do to give her more allowance because of that attraction. Yeah. And I think that it made a little bit more sense from this kind of like wannabe aristocrat mm-hmm. character than I think it, I mean, yes, you could have done that with the clergyman, but I don't think it could have been overt as it was because oh, no. it wouldn't <laughs> have been believable that a clergyman was being that, um, that overt. Yeah, no, exactly. So, the, and there is a given trade that I absolutely agree because if you do give the clergy element of it, while it becomes an interesting religious uh, examination, you do also more than likely, if not absolutely, lose the sexual creepiness, which, I mean, I think is inherent for the story that they're telling in order for the danger and the stakes to see to get as high as they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because by the time we get to the climax of the film, like, she's she's in straight-up danger, not, not just from his insanity, but also his lust for her. Yes. Um, and uh, it's important to point out at this point in the story that uh, there was a mole inside Joss's group, uh, and it turns out to be uh, none other than uh, Traherne, uh, who, uh, Jem Traherne, played by Robert Newton, uh, who was basically an undercover cop um, by British terms uh, and infiltrating this group in order to find out who was behind everything and who the true ringleader was. And then he discovers, as we find out near the end, that it is, in fact, um, Pengallen. So uh, I I will tell you, rewatching it this time, Mm -hmm. it reminded me of The Departed, where everybody's a fucking rat. <laughs> like, mm. not, yes. not as overt, and obviously there's no you know image of a rat going across the window, but <laughs> it's everybody's kind of crisscrossing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, f- with the case of Hitchcock, I think it works beautifully because of the fact that he is able to kind of lay different uh, elements of suspense with one character knowing something that the other doesn't. My issue ultimately lies in the fact that it crosses wires way too often. Well, I think that it's like I this is going to be my theme for all three of these films. But mm-hmm. I think that um, I am a I'm a total uh, classic classicist mm-hmm. um, when it comes to story, which you had described in the psycho episode. Yes, yeah. very much so. And so like this, this film definitely suffers from having n- of not having a clear protagonist. Mm hmm. And the main character not being the protagonist, yeah. and so like even in your in your plot breakdown mm-hmm. was very confusing because the film is very confusing about what it is about. Yeah, like linearly, there are a bunch of ships that keep getting wrecked, mm-hmm. and their entire crew disappears yep. on the same coast. Yep. So the police have sent someone undercover to try to figure out what's going on, and there's this band of thieves that are blocking the lighthouse light yep. to wreck the boats. Right. And meanwhile, there's this magistrate who's in charge of all of it yep. that is getting rich off of this. And then also, oh, by the way, one of the people involved in the Bands of Thieves has a step-niece yeah. that, uh, that, that comes to live with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what the story is about. Yep. And so the step-niece is the main character, mm-hmm. and she's can't be the protagonist because she doesn't know what is going on and she's literally all along for the ride yeah she's and just very going inactive. from point to point to point to point through the whole film and meanwhile you have 
the ringleader that's in a position of power. You've got the undercover cop that's in a position of power. You've got Pin Gallon that's in a position of power. Yeah. And so you have all of these competing things for it. And meanwhile, it's Hitchcock, so he's trying to play with the story and have all these twists. Yeah. And then you have the true person in power, which is Charles Lawton, yeah. <laughs> who keeps saying, I want my character to be bigger and bigger and bigger, which further convolutes everything. And yeah. it, it makes it from a story it makes it a mess yeah it's it's almost as if like i mean so there's a quote by hitchcock which is you know he says cinema is a subjective art form mm-hmm. um which you know debate amongst yourselves whether you agree with that or not i i tend to think that that's that's more often the case than not because we are if you're making if you're watching a good film you'll know because you are more often than not looking through the eyes of one person and their point of view and you're that you are them as the audience uh like the, it's the sir what do you call it? The 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 um, entry point character um, that gets yes. you involved and key, and then you're following along with them the in audience the story. Surrogate. And Hitchcock, yes, yeah, surrogate. And Hitchcock is very good at giving us a character to more or less uh, act as our surrogate throughout the entirety. He may shift every so often, like Psycho shifts um, shifts that point of view because at a certain point we switch from Marion to Norman. Right, but I think that the genius of of, of Psycho is that even though Marion is dead. Mm-hmm. The things that she sets in motion in motion are actually still driving the plot. Exactly. So even though she's dead, she remains the protagonist because every single other thing that happens in that film happened in like in looking for Marion and in trying to find the money and in pursuing the money. Yeah, because as as far as they know, she's still alive and going off with the money. Exactly. So that's why it drives that plot. This film suffers from too much subjectiveness in a weird way. Like you're trying to push too many different POVs. And the one that I think gets lost the most is Lawton because for how much Lawton is on the screen and dominating the screen, I rarely see his point of view and understand his madness. I just know he's going mad. Like, <laughs> well, and, and it also comes about in such a clunky way. Like he just flat out says it. Yep. He, he, he has an outburst to his butler, uh, who is Chadwick, played by Horace Hodges. Don't butcher and baker me! <laughs> who is just, I mean, <laughs> I want to see a whole movie about just those two characters. Because, like, there's no way they're not lovers. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> that, like, just that, like, Chadwick is this, like, amazing, tragic character who is, like, taking care of this huge, like, just crazy person who is more sinister than he, like, I think, you know could be like i think he's probably got a heart of gold but he's just the money 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 you know it's all about the money i have to have it and uh and he's you know chadwick is just like slowly watching his like his 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 boss lover go insane just like his (laughs) grandfather before him exactly which which interesting like first of all when when he kept saying chadwick i was just reminded of one of our professors at colorado film school it was (laughs) just like chadwick (laughs) because we used to just call him chadwick you never called him mr chadwick or anything like that if only we had known to snap that name oh my god chadwick (laughs) chadwick i need help with fcp Yes. Can you help me, please? I don't know how to use version seven. Chadwick. <laughs> um, but also, there there is a there is a there is a absolute uh, benefit to your idea of doing it with, if not from a, a movie just about them, to make the whole movie from his perspective as the butler, because the final shot of the movie is of the butler. <laughs> well, that's that's where that like it there there's just there was such power in that, and it was such this, it was such a sad heartbroken frame to end on yeah and it wasn't it was so mournful even though 
the film had set Pengallon up as the villain. And and mo- and most certainly unsympathetic. Like mm-hmm. there's no like there is nothing in the film to suggest that he deserves a mourning of that nature other than the statement by Chadwick of, oh, he's going mad, he's going mad. And they lay it in, but it doesn't always connect the way it should. It's not it's not like a Norman where you get the hints of him being mad and then by the end you are left to question like, you know, like what what do I feel about Norman? Like now I know he killed these people, but he was driven to a, to an impossible point. Yeah. Like and now obviously we're speaking in terms of 60s psychological breakdowns, so it's obviously <laughs> outdated. Um but with Jamaica in, you know, Penn Gallons <laughs> He's he's like the most stereotypically greedy aristocrat you've ever seen. Right. And and to him possessions are 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 his and his alone and near the end of the movie he makes a statement about like how all of his friends are poor but he's living comfortably and that the 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 old age is dead or like the like like a, a farewell to the old times or something like that and I'm like mm-hmm. now if the movie had been about that then that would have been a cool theme to run through it about like the the decline of a certain generation in favor of another generation. Yeah, but it never it never pans out that and way. And you see flashes of of like his of his empathy, the people who are coming to him asking for breaks on paying him their taxes. Yeah, and asking for help out and stuff. He's extremely generous with his time and money. Yeah. Um. Until he's not. Until he's not. <laughs> yeah. It's uh. It's it's uh. Very. It's very strange. It's imbalanced. Yeah. Um. But yeah. the moments that Hitchcock does come through are usually in his visual technique and style. There's plenty of POV uh, uh, con- uh, shot, shot shot composition within this. Wow, there's um, only one Hitchcock shot that I could find in this film. Really? Like just yeah, just just one. Was it just was it the POV of the of uh, Tremaine coming uh, about to be hung? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, about to be hung, and then once he is hung, and uh, yeah, I actually I took a screenshot of it, and yep. it's. This is wonderful radio. <laughs> yep, this is wonderful radio. If you can, I, I will try to describe it for you. She's seeing through the slit in the ro- in the ceiling above where she's about to uh, see Tremaine hung. Now, here's the thing: mm-hmm. there is other Hitchcock stuff in this, and I will um, identify them for you. Uh, the opening of the film is very much in keeping with Hitchcock utilizing uh, either an opening or a uh, closing set piece of huge extravagance and large production value. Yes. The opening of this film is a huge shipwreck and the plundering afterwards. If you break it down shot by shot, it is specifically crafted. There's no randomness about it, which epic stuff of this nature has to be preplanned, but there was also a lot of chaos. Hitchcock's is more controlled. Um, The next time you see something this massive... Uh, in terms of a special effect, like a ship working around with miniatures like that in huge sets, is foreign correspondent with the plane ca- crashing into the ocean. Hmm. Um, which, if you haven't seen foreign correspondent, we will be talking about it on the next episode when we talk about the war years. Um, but uh, so there, so you have that kind of big set piece, which again Hitchcock is known for. You obviously have Hitch the the Mount Rushmore sequence in North by Northwest. Right. Um, you have, I, I mean, the shower is a set piece in Psycho, a big set piece. Um, and you also have um, uh, in one of in one of the films we'll discuss later. Topaz has a big set piece involving like the hall of um, uh, a Cuban revolutionary leader. Yes, um, and uh, how he utilizes the space. Um, in addition, there are 
the uh, familial battles and conflicts and kind of like inappropriate family relationships or like different obsessions. Um, obviously, Lawton's obsession with the young Mary could be construed as a Hitchcock trope, but I think it delves too far away from that mm. to fully operate in that respect. You do also have a bomb under the table in the respect of like, we know that Tremaine, or we know that Tremaine uh, doesn't know that Pengallen is the actual ringleader. We set that very early on. Yes, that's true. So the suspense does come from when all the wires are crisscrossed of who knows what, it's all a matter of when is when is everything going to be revealed. And yeah. I'll say that the reveal, uh, when Penn Gallen gets up out of his chair to reveal that he wasn't tied up completely um, uh, because the, the, the murderers around him still don't know that Penn Gallen's the actual ringleader. Correct. Um, but Joss knows, so Joss doesn't tie him up. So Penn Gallen gets up. Uh, I think it's a little anticlimactic. Uh, based on the su suspense that was set up earlier about like, because there's a moment when they're in the secret room when Lawton is about to shoot Tremaine. And then when the door opens, you can see the gun slowly sling back like a Western gunslinger. So there's like moments where it could pay off interestingly. And it, I don't know if it does, but yeah. And I think from what I understand of, of the kind of pre-production into production, that was very much Lawton's driving is that I think that, kind of really Hitchcock, that was probably the reveal moment mm -hmm. is Lawton or is a uh, uh, pin gallon standing up and, Oh, I'm untied because I'm actually the one behind all of this. Yeah. Um, but that like none of the other scenes where you really kind of get to see this character shine would have been possible. Yeah. Um, holding that reveal for, for that long. Yeah. Um, going back to the set pieces, I will say watching this aside from the opening, which is very grand. The shipwreck is, is amazing. Um, I was actually, I'm sure it's been done, so I doubt this is an original idea, but I was actually watching this saying this would be a fantastic stage play. Mm -hmm. um, that there are not a lot of big set pieces and there's very little to the story or even the way that it's presented that is actually necessarily cinematic. Yeah. That is requiring like a specific camera point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and even just like the staging of it just seemed, it, it seemed very stage play e yeah um yes. to me i think it's and, and i think it's it's primarily an actor's piece and a character actor's piece to a certain point so much so um it's it's weird like if i think if anybody would have done this <laughs> i kind of would have loved to see robert altman do it because mm. you have a lot of different characters uh you have a lot of actory moments and you can kind of keep it a little more confined um to if not one location, then smaller locations that can feel more insular. They don't require scale. Yeah. Uh, I think the shipwreck probably would have been the only thing that if you weren't going to show it, you'd have to imply it um, mm -hmm. and in a different way. But like if but Altman's done those kind of more tighter films in, in that respect, like his last film on Earth before he passed away, A Prairie Home Companion, all takes place in a in a theater. Right. And then MASH, with the exception of certain times where they go off the base, is pretty much on the base. So you could kind of play around in that realm. So, uh, but alas, it doesn't. And I've never, I didn't read into if there were were any like official stage productions of Jamaica in. I know there've been a couple remakes that oh, I, yeah. I would, I'd be interested to check out. And I, I really want to read the book because I just, again, kind of latching on very early and watching the film of being like, yeah, this film has a protagonist problem. Yeah, I think that if I were in charge of like remaking this or fixing it, mm -hmm. I would make Joss the main character 
because there's there is a redemption arc to this character that is utterly like swept under the rug. Oh yeah. And I think that the fact that he's he can participate in the beginning with the shipwreck. Mm-hmm. We can see this kind of like starting point of this character. And then the introduction of the niece can maybe be sort of the like cracking of the surface and the breaking of the ice in his character. And this like, I've had it with the Pingallon character and him struggling through that. And then, oh my gosh, I've got this mole, but now I have to like, I definitely have to kill him. And like, now I'm going after my niece and I'm driving, driving, driving to the point of like a turn yeah. in that character. That seems to me is like, as the easiest thing to kind of latch on to, to ride this story through because it is fantastic characters and it's an interesting situation. It's just this presentation of it is so jumbled and it's hard to like grab on anything as an audience member. It, it does. It, it fails where rope succeeds to a certain extent in terms of having somebody switch on a dime mm. because he does decide to just suddenly save uh, his, his niece and then, as a result, dies because he, you know, he, he you got to kill off that bad character. Yeah, and, and it is out of nowhere in this film. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in <laughs> whereas in Rope, I, t- I talked about it in the past episodes where I felt I always comment that the ending of Rope is too convenient for him to suddenly throw his beliefs under the bus. But in the scope of that film, it makes more sense than this particular film, which has a larger scale by comparison and does not. It does not involve the mental and psychological breakdowns that Rope does because that mm-hmm. is dealing with much more specific subject matter. This is kind of broad piracy and aristocracy versus common common class. So there's no room for it unless you, as you said, make him your central character and really work with him as your entry point character and give him that redemption arc. Yeah. Because if it's not through his at the very least his POV for the majority of the film, like then it, then it becomes as disparate as it is. Um, or as we suggested, make it about the Butler and have it be a long lost love story. You know, <laughs> I mean, which I'm, I'm totally down for. Like, I mean, and Hitchcock played in that arena of forbidden love more than once. So yeah. it's not like he couldn't do it with this. I think it would have been tougher to get past censors, but yes, <laughs> he seemed to get a lot more past the censors than we'd ever imagined he would. So true. Um, but the film opens up, it succeeds uh, financially, but uh, and critics kind of have it, you know, on a different plane. But the biggest critic of the film um, is the fact that D- Daphne du Maurier did not like it, and at a, and in that time considered withholding the rights to Rebecca, and it wasn't until um, a very uh, energetic and drugged out David O. Selznick uh, was buying up pl- properties left and right, bought this up and kind of used it as amongst other bait to bring Hitchcock over to America. So, you know, it gets, Rebecca gets made eventually, but uh, this was not a good testing ground for Hitchcock to show du Maurier that he had what it took to adapt Rebecca, right. which by contrast, if we're talking about novelization, Jamaica Inn, not as successful as Rebecca. Rebecca is a runaway success, similar to the level of Gone with the Wind, probably as not, not as major, okay. but it was, it was that book that was in nearly every household. Like it was talked about. If you listen to radio shows of the era, even as far back as the early Burns and era, they're making jokes about reading Rebecca because it's an obsession. Gotcha. So you've got there is a there there is a uh, a love for that book in the way where Jamaica Inn is a good start, mm-hmm. but it's not Rebecca. Well, I'm I'm sure that part of the 
persuasion that Hitchcock had over De Maurier for Rebecca was also Hitchcock's criticism of Jamaica Inn because mm-hmm. Hitchcock hated the end product of Jamaica Inn. Yeah, and so I think that there was there was probably some like good cocktail hours of just being like. Yeah, I hate that movie too. I did a really bad job, and look do at, not let that be a reflection on look at, what look I'm at, gonna do. Look at that fat Charlie over there. Look at him hogging up the screen when my camera could be doing everything. Alma, Alma, shut the damn thing off. Shut that. No, I wanted to hate watch, but I'm done hate watching now. We're gonna <laughs> stop. No, no, we'll watch the Last Jedi. That'll be a better hate watching. <laughs> oh, I feel bad that I turned Hitchcock into a guy who doesn't like the Last Jedi. <laughs> I would lo- I would love Hitchcock to talk about modern films. Be like, no, I, I thought the Irishman was I, I thought the Irishman was boring. Watch Goodfellas again. I'm just tur- now I'm just turning him into a weird red pillar. But <laughs> you know, like, um, so now, um, but so we take away from Jamaica Inn is that this is certainly not the first failure that he has because like not every one of his early silent films or sound films like were major successes. Although there was a string during the 30s where they are hugely successful Mm -hmm. and build his reputation as the greatest director in Britain. And in fact, it's first leading authoritative voice for cinema because as discussed previously, Britain didn't really have a cinematic voice up until Hitchcock comes along. They really had no defining cinematic position, you know? Um, Well, I think that like Jamaica Inn is a great example of what happens when Hitchcock is not able to do what Hitchcock does. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is because essentially Charles Lawton, who again is phenomenal in this, but he's not a Hitchcock actor. Funnily and enough, though, he would come back to him. Yes. For a movie called The Paradine Case. Um, I'm assuming that. And by the way, did you watch the Donald's photo uh, visual essay on Amazon with this? No. Oh, so there. If uh, for anybody who's interested in watching Jamaica in, you should probably do it two ways. You can either get the Blu-ray from Cohen Media, uh, which will cost you about eighty bucks because it's out of print, or there's a new one. Yeah. Oh, there is. Yes. Oh my. Yeah. There's a new one that I think is like twenty-seven, and oh. you can also import Ooh. from Europe, and I believe it's a region-free disc. Don't quote me on that, but I believe that it is. And after watching this. Like, this is one that I will watch over and over again, yeah. even though I think it's clunky as hell. <laughs> um, so I definitely will be picking this up on it, Blu-ray. It's still immensely watchable. That's the thing. Like, so it's like, it's a failure. Like, I mean, th- and we should state up front, the, th- the three films we're discussing, for the most part, they are rewatchable. Like, two, they're not... Two of them. Oh, two of them. Ooh. I, I, <laughs> we'll ooh. get there. Yeah, I know I, we'll <laughs> get there. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm in the camp that you can rewatch all of them, but primarily it's because, like, my... I picked a subject that I'm passionate about. <laughs> that was a problem to begin with. Yeah. Next time I have to be more subjective and pick like John Ford because then I'll pick apart that. Um, oh, nice. Um, but uh, good stuff, bad stuff. I was going to say uh, when you were talking about picking another director at a point. Um, yeah. I'm going to be really cheeky here, so I'm I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, if you wanted to do um, De Palma, <laughs> you can just replay all of Hitchcock, all of this one. And just edit in De Palma over every time everyone says Hitchcock, and then you will be done. You'll have an entire series. Uh, my only question is, how do we talk about Scarface? You don't need to. Ooh. I mean... You just replay ooh, all just, of... Just, just do the Jamaica in section, but just replace De Palma and then Pacino there instead of Lawton. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. De Palma is an interesting figure that needs to be discussed on this series as a whole because he he stylistically draws from Hitchcock but his plots are not strictly Hitchcockian which is that's he he, because he doesn't always 
while there are themes that he draws on, I feel like De Palma also kind of just branches out in his own way to an extent. Like, I mean, it's very hard to argue that Carrie is Hitchcockian. Right. Yeah. I mean, beyond the, the, the style. Palma will take any any sized shoe mm-hmm. and try to shove a Hitchcock foot into it, even though it's not sized for it. Very much like, so. <laughs> he he uses Hitchcock as a stencil for his approach to story, even if it doesn't work. It's actually very true. Actually, if you rewatch the first Mission Impossible, I like just did two it, weeks ago. It's very Hitchcockian. It's so it's Hitchcock. Got a lot of Hitchcock in it. It's yeah. really intense, man. Like how much that's in there. I, I I'd say Scarface has it, but I think it also has a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. And also, I'm not the biggest Scarface fan, so uh, that, that people can hit me with stones for that, I guess. <laughs> That's a weird hill to die on. Um, I mean, they, <laughs> I think um, Un- Untouchables has a lot of Hitchcock in it, too. Oh, yeah. Um, I think, um, if nothing else, that that also is a confluence of a lot of different uh, influences and homages. And again, you're also dealing with a TV show of an era. So there's like, it's the same thing with Mission Impossible, where it's like, we have to... We have to balance a couple different balls here. But the difference is that back then doing these adaptations, you're not as beholden to the material as you have to be now because you have to strictly adhere to material when you're adapting that stuff. Right, right. um, uh, For more information, watch Charlie's Angels, the new one, I guess. I don't know. Um, There you go. It was fine. Um, (laughs) It was was a movie. Um, But uh, I'm trying to remember where we jumped off of. um, But Uh, uh, we... There was... um, Oh... I was going to say that um, uh, Hitchcock, while he does not like love this film and whatnot, and while critics of Hitchcock in the uh, in the retrospect don't always acknowledge this, uh, it's interesting that if you watch that Spoto, Spoto visual essay, there's a lot of appreciation, at least from his end. And S- Donald Spoto, if you don't know, he wrote uh, uh, Hitchcock books that really uh, the Hitchcock, the dark side of genius, which is really a big revelation into Hitchcock's psyche. Um, now, also, people contend with different parts of his uh, opinions in that book or his research and different interviews he has, but he is an authority regardless, not just like Stephen Rebello is. So you have, you know, everybody has a different take on Hitchcock. Um, and Spoto's appreciation for Jamaica Inn is surprisingly, like, affluent and full of full of love. Like, it, it's mm. very interesting. It's a 13-minute clip, but... If you go to I'll check it out for if, sure. If you have Cohen Media channel on your Amazon subscription, you can watch it. Um, um, and yeah, Amazon is the other way that you can watch it, which I rented it yeah. from Amazon. And the um, the BBC within the last few years did an amazing 4K restoration on it. Mm-hmm. I was watching it and I was like, this film looks awesome. I know that's the thing. Also, like the first time I watched this, um, it didn't really pique my interest. But the other thing was is that I was watching on a bootleg. Because it's like it's one of those ones that does not really have a home. No, because um, it it has entered a public domain. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the fact that Paramount was the distributor in the in America, but it's a UK film. Not everything's latched onto as heavily as the the American side was, where they, for the most part, held onto their properties, with the exception of Paramount, which lost a lot of shit to Universal MCA in order to sell off some debt, um, and. Uh, with the with the case of this one in particular, uh, it it really got lost in the shuffle because it's Hitchcock that kind of nobody cared about, but that BFI and BBC re- re- restoration really shows. Might have been BFI, yeah. yeah. The the technique that is uh that is put into restoring these films, but also just for all the faults that Jamaica Inn has, it is a 
gorgeous looking movie mm-hmm. very gorgeous looking movie like yeah, and the sh- black and white photography in it is phenomenal and it's actually do you know the uh story behind there being two cinematographers attached to it i do not know this it's uh bernard knowles mm-hmm. and harry straddling senior yeah bernard knowles is referenced as um additional photography and so I don't know if maybe that's some of the comp work, some of the mat work for the shipwreck or something like that. But there are two two cinematographers um, credited for this film. I did not find anything within that realm. But if anybody does know more about it, please let me know. And again, when I started this podcast, I fully, uh, fully laid out the expectation that I'm not the biggest expert in the world. So <laughs> and that I shouldn't be doing this, period. <laughs> but that being said, I mean, like if there are two of them, it might part of it might have to do with either something happened where they had to switch people or it could be for the miniature work yeah. um, and the different special effects shots. That would make um, sense. Which, by the way, for that opening shot, fun fact, um, uh, the sailor who's um, uh, uh, steering the boat uh, died of pneumonia after this scene. Because he was dumped with so much water. Oh. Uh, that's a little piece you'll get in the Spoto essay. Yes. Yeah. That's horrible. My bad. <laughs> My bad, dog. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, 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 it's nuts, right? Um, so Hitchcock then comes to America, though, works for a methamphetamine addict, and then <laughs> uh, breaks away from that, uh, forms his own company that fails. He goes to work for the mostly Paramount but other studios and makes the biggest classics of the 50s and early 60s uh, up until Marnie. Uh, we won't talk a lot about Marnie here because that that is a failure, but that is a failure that needs to be discussed on a different episode. Yeah. Um, but if we were to touch in on depth. it a little bit, mm-hmm. it is a critical and commercial failure. It does not hit with anybody. Uh, it, and if anything, rightly so is raked over the coals. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, although there is, there are things in Marnie that are utterly fascinating um, that don't have to do necessarily with that story and the way it executes itself. I've, I've maintained that the score by Bernard Herman is fantastic. Oh yeah. It's the- a wonderful score. Uh, and it also kind of leads us into uh, our next film because uh, Bernard Herrmann's uh, last film with Hitchcock was Marnie. It would have been the next film, which is Torn Curtain. Um, before we talk about Torn Curtain, we'll talk a little about Ber- Bernard Herrmann's involvement. Um, in the midst of Marnie failing and Torn Curtain being made, it was uh, highly wanted by the studio for a more commercial score. This isn't the first time he's had to deal with this. Uh, during the production of Trouble with Harry, it was insisted upon by uh, the studio, amongst others, that he have a popular hit song uh, or something that could be marketed as a popular hit song in the Trouble with Harry, which uh, brings us to the song Flag in the Train to Tuscaloosa, which you would have heard a majority of at the end of the last episode of Shamley. Um, so this isn't the first time music's been a issue with Hitchcock in the studio. But what it does do is uh, Hitchcock is at the behest of pleasing people but also wanting to change things up he wants a more commercial score bernard herman delivers a hitchcock score for for torn curtain i would argue um if you watch the blu-ray of torn curtain you can watch the additional scenes that were scored by herman before the score is scrapped and uh there's one scene in particular where it's actually pretty awesome but you can go either way with it Mm -hmm. um and long story short herman is canned and this ends up being the final collaboration between the two uh, in any in any form or fashion. The f- final finished film is Marnie. Uh, Torn Curtain is just the last time they even work together for any amount of time. Uh, and so we don't get 
the final films of Hitchcock scored by Herman, which would have been up until Family Plot um, because he died in 1974. So with the last score he did being Taxi Driver. So Torn Curtain brings in a different composer, um, John Addison, which uh, I, I, uh, I mean, he's, he certainly does a score. I mean, there's nothing incredibly uh, unique about it. It's its thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 services the film well. The film is, uh, an you know, an espionage thriller. Yeah, and there are sequences that are suspenseful, and the score, like, I think that it's it is a perfectly serviceable underscore to what is going on. It doesn't get in the way of the film. Um, I don't know that it necessarily elevates it <laughs> in the same way that like a lot of what you know Herman did for Hitchcock's films right. elevated it um but I don't I don't hate the score it no. just it's the score for yeah. Torn Curtain it fits yeah exactly and um with that we can jump into Torn Curtain which is uh a, a whole bunch of messes going on at once because he also has to change a lot of his main but before we get into the story you have yeah. to change you have to talk about the changing crew because he loses Robert Burks and George Tomasini his editor and his cinematographer for a long time um, Tomasini, like, you know, without Tomasini, you don't have something like Psycho, like, really fitting together. Like, you could have Alma and Hitch doing everything, but Tomasini lays it out. And Robert Burks was a fantastic cinematographer, won an Oscar for To Catch a Thief. It was a core component of Hitchcock's that, uh, that disappears at this point. Like, Marnie's the last time where it, you know, flourishes from a Hitchcock, purely his vision standpoint. Hmm. Um, so this and the cinematography and torn curtain to my mind while Hitchcockian it feels like there's something missing it's yeah it's uh the cinematographer is John F. Warren yeah and uh, he looking at his credits through IMDb is mostly it looks like a, a television director mm -hmm. photographer um, and uh, a photography and um, I actually in watching it back again I was surprised by how cinematic much of it is yeah. actually especially in contrast to our third film which we'll get to but uh <laughs> uh i oh you showed your hand <laughs> I, did. <laughs> I did um but yeah actually there's there's a lot in in torn curtain um cinematographically that i really enjoy including one there's one shot in the film that i think lasts less than two seconds mm -hmm. and it is the film to me all three times i've watched this film I've stopped the movie and rewound it and paused it just to like bask in the glory of this frame. Okay, so and I do want to um I want to know this shot now but um mm, that's a good one. I got another one. Um well, we just looked at another screenshot. Um so again, this we is did. wonderful podcasting, but yes. you can check out my Instagram. These shots will be up on my Instagram. Yes, I will forward you all to Marshall's <laughs> Instagram and you guys can take a look at it. Um but um what I will say is that w before I break down the plot of Torn Curtain, um, it's important to understand that uh, this film uh, did all right, uh, did all right commercially, but critics tore this one apart. Um, but it also is not the bonanza success that uh, Hitchcock had been receiving for Psycho and the Birds. Mm -hmm. So it almost kind of levels out from Marnie. But it doesn't exceed that expectation. And also, this is his 50th film. So, you know, there's a there's there's a lot of weight that comes around that. But within the plot of Torn Curtain, it's about a scientist played by Paul Newman 
uh, who uh, uh, basically he he leads everybody to believe that he has defected from the U.S. to join the German Democratic Republic uh, in order to work on a project that would eliminate all the need for all nuclear weapons. Uh, little does he know until he gets on the plane that his wife play, or his fiance, played by Ju Julie Andrews, has followed him there and is now stuck in the situation with him. Um, you think he's a traitor. You think he's uh, defected and that he's going to work with the German Democratic Republic in order to build weapons for their side. But little do you know, it's a uh, crisscross. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a double agent routine so that he can find out the formula that he needs to finish his project and then bring it back to the U.S., um, so the MacGuffin of this film is an equation, and mm -hmm. um, I, I will I will say for this film that um, never has math been so suspenseful ever. I, I I never watched the show Numbers, so I don't know, but math is very suspenseful <laughs> in this film and very frustrating to a lot of people. So in a in a way, Torn Curtain is a perfect movie for me because like many people when they react to math in this movie. I react to math when I try to do it. So, <laughs> like, I mean, I do feel like I need to sit on a toilet and write down specific coding when I'm looking at the symbol pi. So, you know, there's a lot of that. Or, like, just slamming chalkboards. But, um, yeah, I, I, if, if there's any issue that I have with this film, it is that the script does not feel fully uh, idealized. It's, again, it, we've got an issue with protagonist yeah. and main character is mm -hmm. is uh, Paul Newman playing Michael Armstrong is the main character mm -hmm. or is, I'm, no, I'm sorry, is the protagonist. Um, but Julie Andrews' character is the main character. Yeah, because um, she's our point of view. Because she's our point of view and she doesn't know what's going on and her really only point of action mm -hmm. is in deciding to switch her plane ticket and get on the plane to Germany yeah. uh, with her fiance. And past that, she's along for the ride and um, it, <clears throat> it's difficult to be on board with, like, from our main character's point of view, we don't know what's going on. And we're, 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 we're empathizing with our main character who doesn't know, like, she's getting the cold shoulder from her fiancé mm -hmm. who keeps brushing her off. Or once they get to Germany, tells her to go home and tells her essentially, like, I don't really care that much about you. You get the hell out of here now. <laughs> <laughs> this is super important to me. And then watches her fiancé defect and become a traitor to her country. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to be empathetic to that. But meanwhile, our protagonist, who we're also empathizing with, is, like, very headstrong about all this. So we're also really annoyed by our main character who, like, why the hell did she get on the plane? And why don't you just go home? Yeah. And he said that he's doing it because he cares about his project. Why don't you care about the project? And so as an audience member, you don't, like, there's no actual, like, point. You're constantly at war with yourself in terms of the point of view and your entrance into the story. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the writing gives away its hand in a really clunky way, or like way too early on when um, when Armstrong goes to the farm. Yeah. Um, his actual contact, Pi. Yeah. Um, the first words out of his mouth is like, "How does it feel to play the the dirty defector?" Yeah. And it's like, oh, so it's 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 a play. Yeah. So he's he hasn't affected. So he hasn't. He's not a traitor to the U.S. Right. But then Julie Andrews' character isn't caught up for another hour. Yeah. And then that moment is played like this, oh, my gosh, this big, amazing reveal. But at that point, our point of view is completely back 100% uh, on uh, Armstrong's character. Right. 
which which to and be it's just such a like it's just such a jumbled story and it's like well, you need you need to choose one and we're either on this ride where we don't know what's going on and you need to put more more power in uh in Julie Andrews character's uh decisions yeah and, and her decisions and have her driving a little bit more mm. um or you put us in the position of Armstrong 100% and he's we know that he's doing a double cross and now he's got to figure out how to get his fiance who he totally loves and cares about out of Germany once he finds these plans which if he had somebody like Cary Grant I think he would have took more time with the script because it should be noted that the script was never where he wanted it to be by the time they started filming amongst the other issues with that there was a rush schedule because Julie Andrews only had a certain window to make this movie and there and was this is Julie Andrews straight out of Mary Poppins. Yeah. Right? So that also this film starts out with Julie Andrews in bed naked with Paul Newman, which and she's straight out of Mary Poppins. Let's let's face it. We were all wanting that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was. Um. But I think like critically, I think that hurt the film a lot as well. It's oh, just yeah. seeing Mary Poppins like and and they're not married. And it's just like all of this stuff going on in, in, in 1966 and like, no, it's not the 50s anymore. But still, like, there is a lot in this. It's just like, what is Mary Poppins doing? Oh, my God. Like, yeah, that that uh, it was a hell of a way to introduce those characters. I just had an idea like, you know, Paul Newman, you know, they 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 ruffle around in bed and then there would have been a perfect line that was practically perfect in every way. <laughs> I'm leaving the building. <laughs> I'm done. Um, no, you're right. That that does, and this is a period where if you know if an actor plays an iconic role like that, to see them deviate outside of that is very challenging. Nowadays, we don't have as big an issue with it. Like you can have somebody like Chris Evans play Captain America for 15 movies, but then do something like Knives Out and completely upend that, and it works beautifully because mm -hmm. he's allowed to stretch a muscle he did before. But well, I think even to a degree, Paul Newman is oh, like Paul, Paul Newman is playing this like advanced mathematician physicist, and he's limited. He's very limited, and he, it's like this is Paul Newman. You know, he's like good old blue eyes. He's like he's a good old boy, and yeah. uh, and I think that and it it it's interesting to watch, and I think he's not distracting in it, but it does seem a little off and I'm, I'm sure a lot of that had to do with behind the scenes kind of tug of war going on between he and hitch there was a not only a tug of war there was a, a letter written by paul newman explaining uh in detail what was wrong with his character and the movie itself uh to which hitchcock replied with a a little story about um a, a certain app a certain thing that the judge would sniff at the old bailey to uh remove the stench of the the rotten decay around him and so he said, next time, get a when you walk on the set, get a good whiff. So it's one Hitchcock telling him to just do your job, and it's another going like, I know this is shit. I keep, you don't have to tell me. I know we're in a pickle here, but this is all we have the ability to do. Um, I mean, like, and, and, you know, there is the fact is that Newman comes from a newer school of acting. It's not uh, the new wave. It's much more the Brando um, or Montgomery. It's method, 100%. Yeah, and it's Montgomery. And Montgomery Clift already gave him enough trouble on I Confess to where he was certainly not uh, about to put up with that anymore. And so with Newman, I think that while he respected Newman, as is noted, he also was very aware that he failed to understand that Hitchcock's style is that my camera is number one, you are number two. And, you know, th there's a there's a debate about, like, is that, you know, good filmmaking or not into a certain respect. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you're a craftsman like Hitchcock, it kind of is. I, I think that there, 
in in watching the supplementary material on the Blu-ray and 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 diving into kind of the you know the ancillary behind the scenes stuff about Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. I actually think that there's a version of uh, a Hitchcock and a Paul Newman film that is amazing, and that they're amazing collaborators. But mm-hmm. I think that with the issues studio-wise and producerially and script-wise around Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. made it impossible for them to actually be able to be collaborators on this film, and it put them at war. It's it's most certainly a situation where I mean, the, Hitchcock had to compromise all over the place. Like he wanted even Marie Saint for the female lead, which would have been right up his alley because he's worked with her before mm-hmm. but also it, it's a character that could lend itself better to her being cast and Lou Wasserman is kind of the one who pushed Newman and Andrews on him because of their popularity and the reception of Marnie once again has a lot to do with how this film is dictated to him because yep. this is a point where he loses a lot of control because Marnie has a lot of problems with it both on and off set so there's a lot uh, there's a lot to be taken in from that particular scenario and uh carrie grant was approached to be in this film but uh grant was going to retire and you know and and ryan and i've talked about this like grant was a person who was just kind of done with hollywood at a certain point and Mm -hmm. with torn curtain i think you see a lot of intention to recapture a period that no longer existed for hitch not just because the times are changing but because all his friends are getting old and they're they're not they're not keeping up with his mentality or his drive because um, they there's still a drive in Hitchcock to be a a, a dynamic filmmaker that's bro- breaking barriers the way Truffaut and Godard and uh, 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 Fellini are all doing like and and he's just not keeping up and he's certainly not going to keep up in the next uh, within the next couple of years and yeah. well you can feel like there's a lot of torn curtain that that feels like it's really trying to be North by Northwest. Yeah. Um, and, and Torn Curtain is such an interesting, um, I mean, I'll get to my analogy in a second cause I'm in love with it. So I'll hold it off for a second. But yeah. I, I think that there, there are a lot of sequences that are pure Hitchcock and mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. And then there's a lot of like utter Hitchcock laziness mm-hmm. at the same time. And yeah. it's really like, it's just such uh, an interesting watch. It's so uneven because some sequences, like the stuff going through the museum, uh-huh. is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then you've got entire sequences that are all based around these like old these process shots. Oh, yeah. And just like, oh, let's put Paul Newman and Julie Andrews in a restaurant, but like, oh, I don't want to deal with all the extras and stuff. Just throw up a rear projection screen and let's do it there. And it's just lazy as hell. And just like, I get it for you know. It's the same reason that David Fincher doesn't use any like live blood. He just creates it all digitally because yeah. it's easier and you don't have to do the resets. Right. But it's uh, you, you, you can't see the digital blood in a David Fincher film the same way that you can totally see a rear projection scene in Hitchcock films. So we should talk a little bit about process shots because they haven't really been discussed on this show, number one. But number oh, really? two, I think you would. Okay. Well, we've talked about them, but I think in broader terms uh, and also that uh, – this is something that I've been learning over the course of this series is that not everybody's in love with those process shots. Mm-hmm. And I like them to a point. Um, I, I think the way I learned about this being a style of Hitchcock was actually through Pulp Fiction because of that process shot with Willis in the cab. Yeah. Um, which is it's a beautiful shot. And it's not the first time that Tarantino did that, nor would it be the last time. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, obviously, Tarantino uses it sparingly. 
Hitchcock, um, these process shots were necessary back in the old, back in the older uh, with the older films, primarily because of just the ability to do things. Um, as people started going on location more, uh, Hitchcock seemed to go in full reverse, and uh, part of that as has been speculated by people like Leonard Maltin is that he's getting older and it's just not convenient enough for him. Um, and there's more control on the set. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that the process shots don't work the same way in color that they do in black and white. They really don't like black and white. It's obvious, but there's something, there's something about watching a process shot in a black and white movie that doesn't distract you as much as it does in a color film. And you can, I mean, you can get away with more and there's a, there's di there's a difference when you're using a process shot in a car shot specifically. There's a difference between it being a dialogue scene and having an entire uh, suspense set piece yeah. around what is going on inside the vehicle versus what is going on outside the vehicle. Yeah, and that is a place where process just like does not work. Right. Um, it can work in stuff like North by Northwest, where like the famous plane scene and yeah. scaling the Mount Rushmore that's all process stuff but you have this wonderful marriage between foreground and background and you're isn't a, a locked off vehicle yeah and you have the immersion of a story that is in, encapsulating your attention and um a, a, with process shots I think like it's interesting like Marnie's Marnie's process shots with the uh jumping of the horse I think work really well for the story they're telling mm -hmm. but it doesn't always work with every shot of every movie he does um the movie we'll talk about after this has a lot of that too. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with Torn Curtain, I think that whenever they go into the process shot mode, yeah, it's frustrating, um, especially when it comes to the bus, because I think that the bus has potential to be uh, so good. Le I think the problem is, I think the problem with the process shot ultimately is, is that it has a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm trying to remember who brought this up. And I, if I remember, I'll uh, edit it into the episode blank here. But um, there is a point of this, like, it, it it creates an artificiality where Hitchcock reminds you that you're watching a movie, but he's able to talk about real things. And in essence, he, you know, he sticks to cinematic form in that respect of just like, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. Um, but there is something lost in that. If you're going to create an artificial motif in that, um, and uh, you don't blend it throughout the rest of the movie, it doesn't work. You have to either make that your tone or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those process shots that first came out of convenience and ability to do things you couldn't do otherwise became style over time and became more of a necessity and crutch for him because of his distaste for location filming. Now, again, that's that's a theory. I mean, he uses a lot of process shots in Family Plot as well, and they might be the worst of them. Mm. I don't think they're terrible, but if we're going to really rank a quality here, I think Family Plot does it the worst. Yeah. Um, that doesn't take away from Family Plot, nor does it take away from Torn Curtain to a certain extent. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky situation because it is a style and it is a choice now. Mm -hmm. But back when he was doing it, there is a sense that it was just him going like, I don't want to work in this. I don't want to work outside the studio because right. I don't have the control of that. Um, and, you know, and again, like we were talking about, this feels like an attempt to do North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. when I watched Torn Curtain again last night, my initial reaction was this is paint by numbers. That's interesting. I, I haven't looked at it through that lens before. 
because when I first saw the movie, I was just kind of like, oh, it's it's okay. It's not my favorite move <laughs> to Psycho again. Um, but this one does feel like paint by numbers. Like almost every beat is hitting it, and it doesn't distinguish itself. Yeah, this is so. My analogy of this film is Torn Curtain is Alfred is Alfred Hitchcock's Gigli. <laughs> it <laughs> it gets. Every single aspect of this film is like half a degree off from Bullseye, which completely teeters the film. Oh, it it completely topples it over. Okay. Like everything about this film is almost perfect or is perfect in a vacuum. So Topaz is Jersey Girl? I'm just thinking about movies that ruined Ben Affleck for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, like, Paul Newman by himself in this film is phenomenal. Like, I believe him as a physicist. He's great. Um, I love his characterization. I love his struggle. I love how quiet and contained he is. Uh, I love his worry. I, I love I love everything in it. Julie Andrews is a freaking gem. Yeah. She is so good in this. She's heartbreaking. She is fantastic. Um, they, together, have zero chemistry. But anytime the frame is on one of them or the other reacting to the other one, I believe that. But put them in a frame together, and it's just like, nope, this doesn't work. By themselves, they're amazing. Which, together, they're horrible. Interesting you bring that up because, I, well, first of all, that is a great <laughs> analogy, and I fucking love that. Uh, might be a little harsh, but good. <laughs> uh, there is a shot that is one of my favorite um attempts in the movie, and I think it works, but not on the level it's supposed to. Mm. Um as as has been stated in the past, Hitchcock uses a lot of uh, uh, tricks with sound, whether it's turning it off completely or lowering it so low that the intention is to create a silent film effect. And one of my favorite shots in the film that reminds me of earlier films that he's done and also early silent films is when he goes off to tell Julie Andrews um, that he's, in fact, a double agent. Up the hill. Up the hill. Mm-hmm. And it's explained through the point of view of creepy glasses guy. Um, I cannot remember his name to save my life. It's because um, uh, it, it's, <laughs> is that Gerhard? Yeah, it, it's Gerhard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause we, no, we'll talk about Gromek in a minute. Yeah. Gr- Gerhard is the guy who's got the glasses and it's got the hots for Julie Andrews at the beginning. Yes. And uh, he's seeing their conversation from afar. So he can't hear it. There's silent film acting going on up at the top of that hill between both of them. And that's the only time where I feel like their chemistry even remotely works um, outside of maybe the bed. But that's only because it's just, hey, it's Paul Newman and Julie Andrews in bed together. But yeah, but I, and actually that that is a fantastic scene to watch to see where an old classic Hollywood style of writing, why it doesn't work with the with method acting and with the new style of acting. Yes, yeah. there is a there's a rat a tat nature to it yeah that is so wonderful that like works in charade yeah. beautifully coming out of those mouths said with that cadence yep and then you put it in the mouths of these totally naturalistic actors and the charm is there it's just again it's a half a degree off yeah every single aspect of it is like Ugh, it's something just, something there's something sharp yeah just a little bit something feels strange about it yeah but with that scene at the hill you know we don't get any dialogue out of them until that <laughs> Glory shot, reveal. That glory shot of <laughs> Julie Andrews suddenly smiling, like with the with the most obvious music cue, which this huge flare and a sunset behind her and sparkles in her eyes, and it's yeah. Here's the thing: if Bernard Herrmann did the score, like I I, I mean like I can't imagine it would have been any better, but because it's a, it's a moment that's a, it's a choice, but 
that that moment when you're just watching it from the top of the hill, you know, there's there's good silent and silent film motif going on there. And it also happens earlier with Andrews when she when the sound is turned off completely and we're just kind of dealing with her internal so good her, in the hotel lobby. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so there's a lot to to grasp onto Hitchcock. You going back to the silent film technique in a way that really harkens back to his older period that he hadn't done before. Like, cause there's a, there's a big chunk of it and I just kind of touched on it, but Gromek's death, you could turn off the sound. You don't need the sound effects. It's still as impactful and effective. Yeah. And one of the scenes in the Blu-ray that they score to Herman's score is that scene and it can work. It can totally work. It's like a horror film scene. Mm-hmm. Turn that sound off. It's unnerving. It's yeah, unnerving. It's, yeah. The, the, I mean, was this like a four-minute scene, something yeah. like that? It's this huge struggle between uh, Armstrong and Gromek, and it is it really amplifies like the horror of violence. It's not stylized or cinematic in terms of like movie violence. It's clumsy. It's clumsy and it's rough, mm-hmm. and it's um like there's even this irony going on because Gromek is like as he's being choked has these like snide remarks of like, okay, I like, was trained by the best. <laughs> done playing around, you know, that kind of Game's thing. Game's over, Mr. Bond. Oh, wait, wrong franchise. Um, <laughs> and it's just such a rough, like slow, uh, clumsy's perfect word for it, death. Yeah, and it's, uh, there was a note in the Torn Curtain ri- raising, rising uh, feature on the Blu-ray, you know, a lot of spy films of this era when we're looking at you mr bond uh treat death rather callously and mm-hmm. and as easy as point and shoot which other genres do that but the spy one in particular and hitchcock's able to latch onto the idea of just like well no death is not that easy you fucking moron <laughs> like do i have to show you do i have to strangle you myself to show you how hard it is to kill you like he's aware of that, and so he's able to exploit that in a very, very poignant way. And, um, and going back to every aspect of this film being one degree off or perfect in its own vacuum is Carolyn Conwell as the farmer's wife in that oh, scene. Oh yeah, she is incredible. Yeah. She is, she's her frankness of like, I know what I'm involved with, and he Gromek found us out. So this is a thing that has to happen. Yeah. And the the struggle that she's going on between, oh, I should shoot him. Oh, no, wait, the taxi driver's outside and he'll hear it. Okay, well, I'll stab him. Well, I've got to wait for the right moment. And just her her thinking, like Paul Newman is useless in that scene. <laughs> like <laughs> he's so clearly a mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> just like a, a, a clum, you know, clumsy, sci- clumsy scientist. She's like, oh, and, no, um, I know what to do. Knife. Yeah. Stabby oh, thing. knife. Okay, well, that didn't work. <laughs> I'll grab the shovel. Oh, that didn't work. Let's turn the gas on the stove. Yeah. Or in the oven. And um, it, she's she's phenomenal in this. Yeah, which th- some critics of the era had pointed to that gas oven in particular as an allusion to the concentration camps. And Very much so. Hitchcock was pretty quick to dismiss that. Really? But you ca- Well, I think it's that he didn't want to... His It certainly wasn't... Hind- it, as far as what he's saying... It's not his full intention to fully acknowledge that. It's kind of like it just happened to happen, and it happens to be that way. Now, there might be a little bit of Hitchcock backing off of that Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to give a direct answer, but there is an interesting image there that's not... You know. Yeah, and I think that there's there's enough to play with with even just like the like the character of Gromek, who is by the way just 
one of the highlights of this film. Oh yeah, he's scary as shit. Oh my gosh, and he's but he's so charming in this like sinister twinkle in the eye sort of way of mm-hmm. just that like I lived in New York. <laughs> yeah, I lived in Eighty Eighth Street, and like you still have Pete's Pizza Palace. <laughs> all of the phrases like, do you still use this phrase? Like, is this still a turn of phrase? Uh, you know, all, all over and over again is that it's like okay, so looking at kind of the time of like where Torn Curtain is taking place and who yeah. this character is, it's like, okay, so he was definitely a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. And then came to America fleeing persecution and then found a home being some security dude in the GDR. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and that's just like, that is his story. So, yeah. so knowing that his, his death ends up in uh, a gas oven, um, and it's also very slow, and that overhead shot just lingers and lingers with his shaking hands, and it's a masterful shot, and it's beautiful. Um, I, yeah, I have a hard time kind of completely dismissing the uh, illusion. To oh yeah, it. no, I agree. Because when I watched it, I was just like, man, this is this is not a death that I've seen out of Hitchcock before, and the fact that no. it is happening in this environment is all too coincidental to be just coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know. You take it with the director. If he's telling you it's not intentional, then it's like, okay, well, then this is just something he's just not going to acknowledge. Um, but but uh, that's what I love about film is that it doesn't have to be the director's intention. It could be the writer's intention. Exactly. Um, or it could be the choreo- you know, whoever choreographed yeah. the fight could be their intention. And it, it seems be- like more or less he was just not willing to give like a direct answer on it. So he kind of – he never – fully dismissed it okay but it is a shot that is worthy of discussion no because i agree like it does i mean like when i heard saying that hitchcock dismissed it i'm like when you talk about this pretty on the nose mm-hmm. but like but, but in a way that is intense and unique for that time especially and it should be noted before we move away from the torn curtain um and into the parlor huh? but um uh but the uh the, the 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 whole goal of this film is talking about like the 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 struggle of an actual spy like what does spying actually look like and feeling like it's almost trying to deconstruct the spy genre that's so prevalent in a series that Hitchcock was offered and rejected which mm-hmm. was James Bond yeah um so it seems very bent on deconstructing that and also talking about the str- the real life uh discussion of people defecting to a communist country or the Cold War in general and how this thing is operating between not the least of which the East Berlin and West Berlin, but the kind of struggle as a whole, which becomes more apparent in the next film. Yeah. But this one in particular seems very interested in stuff that I don't think it's fully allowed to go further into. As you said, it's kind of always a degree off mm-hmm. because there's a point in which I wish this film was more of a miniseries, not unlike mm. the Americans where you have the defaction and then maybe as a season one or season two uh, finale reveal, you reveal that he is in fact a double agent. And then that changes the stakes for like, say a five season series. Gotcha. Interesting. I think that this would be an interesting mini series slash, like if you were allowed to let this story breathe longer, you could find different incorporations into it. Not saying it'd be perfect. Yeah. But I was almost kind of like, man, there's a lot of gaps here that I wish I had character wise. It is. It's yeah. It's like, there are times where like, where it takes time, it needs to be shorter, and where it's super short, it needs to take time. Yeah. Um, and like, I mean, again, like I just the first time I watched this, I came away from it being like 
there are individual sequences in this film. There are individual characters in this film that are perfect. Yeah. And as soon as you try to find a connection point into any other aspect of the film, it utterly falls apart. Right. I mean, my favorite thing of the entire app, the absolute entire uh, film is, uh, is Lila Kudrova playing Countess uh, Kuczynska. I'm so glad you brought her up. Cause she's that, that this, there's this scene at a, at a liquid table. <laughs> At a it's not coffee. Table. It's brown liquid. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> In celebration, I will pay for the liquid. <laughs> <laughs> she can't bring herself to call it coffee because yeah. she hates the, well, the West German coffee not, so much. Yeah, it's not coffee to her. The cigarettes are not cigarettes. Like, do you have American cigarettes? And you must smoke mine. Just paper. Just it's it's I'm, disgusting. I feel her because when I was still smoking cigarettes, that would have pissed me off. <laughs> it's like 72s. They're not actual cigarettes. But, but she plays this poor Polish countess who's stuck in West Germany. Mm-hmm. And that scene at the coffee table is a master class in acting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would put that up against like so many Academy Award winning performances for that century. It is incredible, but yep. it may, has no place in this film. Yep. It, it takes so much time and is so weird and is like so clunky. And it's again, it's like, it's this perfect little thing and you try to put it in the rest of it and it absolutely falls apart. Yeah. It's, it's a distraction, but it leads to a subject that could be even more fascinating, which is a person trying to get their sponsorship to leave a country that they like are objecting to and like the the idea of the re- the people trying to obtain the refugee status and motif or I think there's a story there about trying to escape a country that is hostile like that mm-hmm. or that is tyrannical of that nature and her character would probably work better if that scene were cut or trimmed down further and if the post office scene didn't take that long with that comedic moment about uh, Mr. Albert Albert like it he pushes he pushes uh patience a little too much with that well, character. Again, that's like all of the all of the comedic bits in this film by themselves work wonderfully as bits. Yeah. But they happen at the most inappropriate times as far as the suspense and like what's at stake with the plot and what's going on. They have no place being where they are, but they are really, really funny when you're watching them by yourself. I mean, like when I was watching it again this most recent time, the 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 scene on the plane when Paul Newman sees Julie Andrews sitting at the back of the plane and realize that he's that she's followed him yeah. to West Germany, I could not stop laughing out loud. <laughs> just the dry pan look that she is giving him yeah. of just like that's right, buddy, I'm right here, and he's just like, what the hell are you, are doing you here? freaking kidding me? And she's just like, hello, Michael, hello, Michael. <laughs> like, it is so funny, and it ha- it's that is the wrong place for humor. Same thing in the yeah. post office, same thing in, in several different areas in this film. Yeah. Really good humor, really inappropriately placed. Yeah. And it's, and you know, again, we're talking about a film that really wants to be a North by Northwest, which has a lot of different motors operating to be both suspenseful and humorous. And mm-hmm. in the case of torn curtain, it absolutely does not work. Um, and, I'll tell you, I do like the switch at the end. The switch at the end is fun, and because it calls back that ballerina character, it's not perfect, but oh. I, I like it as a constructed scene. Yeah, that's the like. I think that "Torn Curtain Works" is a great title. Another possible title for this film is "Ballerinas Know Your Place." <laughs> <laughs> 
She does straight up. I de- she, she is, is a hateful she, character. Yeah, from she's start like, to finish. She's a weird snitch, man. I'll tell you. Yeah. Like, but also ballerinas be snitching. You know, it's 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 kind of like it's, you know what? It's it's like why would you tell them to go to an open theater before? You know, having to be smuggled out the back end. Like, I, I think there must have been a different way to get them into that area to get into those boxes without putting them inside the theater. Because if there's one thing I've learned with Hitchcock and theaters, whether they're movie or stage or mm-hmm. concert, something's going to happen. <laughs> like, yes. There's no way that there's nothing's going to happen. Now, I do like the shot from behind the theater proscenium looking into the audience like that. It is a fun little POV shot that's typical of Hitchcock. Very much so. And the whole the calling fire and the crowd rush is a fantastic set piece. Which, by the way, he's just breaking law after law, and then now this. Like, mm-hmm. now he's just being rude. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but the film uh, was criticized, obviously, upon its release in terms of being old-fashioned. There's, uh, there's a consensus that hmm. Hitchcock is not understanding how cinema is changing around him. Which is actually to the contrary. It's not that he doesn't understand that cinema is changing. It's just that he is, and it's not that even even so much that he's just used to stuff. Is that there's there seems to be constraints put on him to make a commercial product that works with both his realm and what a studio wants, and he's not allowed to branch out as far as he can. Uh, in the episode where I talked with Jack Hanley, uh, we discussed the fact that he was working on. A film called Kaleidoscope, which would have been like a flat-out new wave film by Alfred Hitch- by Alfred Hitchcock, where it was just hmm. straight up a lot of a lot of violent and uh, boundary-pushing imagery uh, contained within. And this film does have an old-fashioned bent to it. And you know, part of the issue is this is 1966, and the times are a change in. Yeah, like I mean, it's just things are about to progress in a way that will be absolutely detrimental to his way of filmmaking, which, you know, we we can then proceed to Topaz at that point. Couple couple quick points I want to get in just about uh yeah, torn torn curtain. Um um again, well yeah, I just every single bit part in this film are amazing. Yeah. Um every aspect of it is great. The ballerina is wonderful. I I love her so much. Um but even just like um um, visual storytelling wise is like going back to you know film school 101 is like it starts and it ends under with the two char- or their two characters undercovers yeah and it's just like it's it's such a tight script that is just wrong in all of the perfectly wrong places um, and um, it really is like it's it's a film worth studying I think for that reason to yeah. see to see a filmmaker doing things that they know worked before or, and I mean, I actually, I really love the way you put it of, of doing paint by numbers yeah, and that you can, if you approach a film or a, a piece of art as purely mechanical yeah, and you're, you're approaching it 100% as an engineer of like this piece goes here because it will support this aspect of the story that you can actually end up with something that is completely hollow and and soulless. Which is, you know, Hitchcock is a noted technician in that respect. Yeah. But he's been able to toe the line between purely mechanical and purely story, and just like there's a marriage between the two. And, you know, in discussing how films are changing at this point, which I think is important to what you're talking about, is that, you know, films are becoming more personal, and this film is not 
inherently personal. Not at all. And what's interesting is that, you know, like a year later you get Bonnie and Clyde and that starts the, that really pushes the change even further. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is, is that these changes come because Hitchcock kind of changed them because psycho was as influential as it was. And mm, that's, that's interesting. A, that's a motor. It's not the motor. There's yeah. obviously other things outside of the U S and also other things in the U S but it's weird. He changed the game and then thought he could still go back to doing things he used to do. Yeah. Well, he. I think he provided a, such a solid foundation Yeah. to act as a springboard to go from there. Yeah. And he was, you know, understandably stuck in his ways Yeah. in, in that foundation. Which, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But at a certain point, nobody wants the thing you fixed. Right. Or the, the thing you broke or... This yeah, is weird. That's <laughs> where, like, you know, it would have been interesting to see, you know, this transition happening with, um, uh, with Hitchcock, like ten years later, when independent cinema was really rampant, to see what would have, what would have been possible with Hitchcock being able to break away from the studios and still do Hitchcock, right, and not be married to the studio system or what? whatever that is. But also, like at that point, if he's so comfortable being in a stage, and and working in that sort of controlled manner, which requires working under a studio, then like, would that marriage work? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, but so this ends up being a failure primarily on the critical end, and you know, I guess slightly on the commercial end. And one um, thing that wasn't a failure though is there's a wonderful cameo in it, Zach. I don't know if you caught this, mm -hmm. but on the bus, uh, one of the German twins is played by the actor who will be Vigo the Carpathian Scourge in Ghostbusters 2. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. I, the first time I saw it, I was just like, it's Vigo. You know what? Oh, my gosh. It's Vigo. To tell you the truth, when I was watching that <laughs> moment in the film, I, I was like hearing in the back of my head, death is but a door. I'll be back. This. <laughs> 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 You'll need to do some rituals to bring me back, Mr. Hitchcock. <laughs> you won't like them. Uh, it's, dude, like, it, uh, the film, like, it, I will say, like I said, when I say hit financially, by the way, seven million is a minor. <laughs> like, yeah. it does not, it, it does not really, uh, you know, it, it barely gives him back any, like, rope to lead with, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, again, like, it's, it's a shame. Because I like the story. I do like the story a lot. The idea of a defector and, you know, what that does. But then we shift back into old motifs pretty quick. And, yeah. And it's and this yeah. and just again, it's a it's a very neat story. But the way that it's told is like just clunky enough to not work. Right. The reveals happen the wrong time. The suspense pieces are happening at the wrong time. They're great. It's a great reveal. And there are great suspense pieces. But when they have when they are happening and the way they are happening, it's just it's a totally imperfect marriage. Um, and I like, and that's why it's my 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 comparison is Gili is because, aside from the uh, portrayal of a mentally handicapped person in Gili, yeah, which is always wrong, uh, I feel the same way about Gili. Is that I think it's a really really cool individual characters, really cool story. Like Al Pacino is hilarious in it. Like it's just got all of these wonderful pieces. Martin Press is an amazing amazing filmmaker, and every single piece is just a half a degree off enough mm. that the film isn't 
utter mess. I'd want to rewatch Geely in that respect, although I forgot about the mentally handicapped situation in that film. That is yeah. Who, who would later go on to be the comedic relief in the National Treasure films. Uh-huh. Sorry, actor, for bringing that back up again. Ah, uh, gotcha. Um, but yeah, so Torn Curtain, a, um, a, 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 a thing that could have been, but then ended up not being the case for one Mr. Hitchcock. Um, so we... So we have a period uh, in this between Torn Curtain and Topaz where Hitchcock is going to have a bit of a, uh, a, re- a like the final three films that he does, he is trying to do something very different in all respects. And I think it is the case for his last three movies. Uh, Frenzy probably being the most successful at hitting all the marks correctly. Hmm. Um, I, I do think family plot hits the marks, but it's just, it's, it's, it feels as if family plots a little unremarkable. Like it's just, it's good Hitchcock and that's it, you know, but like it, but it has the, you know, it has what we'll look for in a Hitchcock movie. Um, but the beginning of this though, is a, I would say a very big deviation for him. Um, now, You've already played your hand that you don't really like this movie. Yeah, you mean it's a deviation because it's horrible? Yeah, um, I'm going to be on the opposite end. I like this movie, not necessarily because of Hitchcock, though. Ah. Um, if it was... Uh, I've, pu- I've put Topaz in this certain respect, and I th- it seems like me and Leonard Maltin are the only ones who tend to enjoy this film. Um, and I say that because there's a 20-minute or 30-minute video of Leonard Maltin talking about appreciating Topaz, yeah. and I'm like... I believe you, nice man. I Thank you. <laughs> I watched it. I watched it, and I I will defer to Leonard Malton because he was in Gremlins too. Yes, and but and that's why we always. Defer I to him. would love to sit down and have a conversation with him one on one to find out. Actually, aside his, I don't buy his argument that opens that piece, which is don't question Hitchcock because of all the good stuff that he did. Mm. Like I'm just like, oh yeah, okay. Great, yeah. But I also find Topaz insulting. Yeah, like I loathe this film. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I, I really would love to hear. And I, I, I guess I've got you as a as, <laughs> as a Malton surrogate, um, to hear some redeeming it's aspects phenomenal. of it. <laughs> Star Wars was a phenomenon. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, Topaz was a doozy. Yeah, his um, in 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 that appreciation video, I do like it because he is kind of. It seems like it's a personal opinion more than anything else. So it's not even, it's not even strictly film criticism so much as that it's a historian talking very frankly about what he feels, which which mm-hmm. is, which is totally cool. Like I do like it when people do that. Um, the argument of you shouldn't question Hitchcock. Um, it, he first, I mean, the phrasing is that it seems unfair to do it, um, which I right. think is kind of like a balanced statement to make to a certain extent. Um, but the thing is, is that. You know, I love Hitchcock. I obviously chose to start a Hitchcock podcast. Yep. I can't say that the man is incredibly perfect every moment of every time because we literally discussed Marnie more than once on this episode, um, which, you know, again, there are two schools of thought on Marnie, um, or actually there's a bunch of schools of thought, and there's like there's a reevaluation going on from what Jack Hanley told me about Marnie. But, I mean, again, Marnie falls into weird, murky waters uh, that are that just go beyond any rationale. And so it's a it's a film by Hitchcock that while I can respect the acumen behind it uh, from a technical level. And like I said, Bernard Herman's score is great. 
not a film I like watching at all. Yeah, I, like, think, I mean, Mar- Marnie again, and I I swear to God, I don't mean to be a broken record here, yeah, but no. Marnie does suffer from where the perspective is coming from in terms of like what it is trying to justify. Yeah. Um, however, there is a read on that film that actually is a very harsh criticism mm-hmm. of the problematic event in question yeah. of the rape in that film. Yeah. There actually is a read of the film that says that um like it's not justified and it's purposefully not justified. Um that's just really hard to do based on the clunky shift of throwing Sean Connery's character into the protagonist role. Yeah. Um but that's a different discussion for a different uh, episode, right. which but is which we don't want to deviate too much no. from it because ultimately, mostly the reason I brought up us talking about Marnie is because, you know, like not every Hitchcock is a masterpiece. You mm-hmm. know, there are obviously clunk clunkers is is the diplomatic term that I'll use among them. Like, I mean, the parodying case is not a perfect movie by any stretch. Under Capricorn's got its issues. Uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, prior to the '50s that. You know, it doesn't always hit the mark correctly, um, you know, and, and certainly a lot of that comes into the Selznick line of uh, of operating like this just because he got his hands involved in everything. And as a consequence, not everything works efficiently. And as we just discussed, Jamaica Inn does not work mm-hmm. uh, uh, as a Hitchcock movie. But uh, with Topaz, I feel like Hitchcock is. If I were to give lend the credibility is that he really is trying to stretch into a more European affair and going less away from the American way of working that he had been doing. Now, I don't think it necessarily works as well as he wants it to. I think there's an attempt to work with a lot of people that he admires that are in other films of uh, international cinema, whether through the new wave or the old wave. And I admire that he's giving those roles. And I do actually love the fact that this film is a relatively unknown cast because it allows me to believe their characters a little bit more in terms of the way they're playing them. So I'm not burdened by like the archetype of a Cary Grant or a James Stewart. Right. I think John Forsyth is very much John Forsyth. Uh, and he's decidedly playing something a little bit less uh, uh, lackadaisical than he did in The Trouble with Harry, obviously. But... Topaz, uh, I think is to to use a word. It's pedestrian. It's a very pedestrian spy thriller. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it. There were aspects of it that really made me think back to like this. Felt like Hitchcock kicking himself for turning down Bond. Yes, it was like I'd like to have a hand at playing at, at like doing this whole Bond thing. Yeah. Um. And it's really clunky. Yeah, and and to be fa- and and keep in mind when I say all this, this is coming from a guy who likes watching the movie. Like I, it's it's a good long spy thriller that I could I could sit down and watch. And it has Hitchcock's cinematography in it. There are Hitchcockian moments, not the least of which is the hall uh, with um, uh, uh, the revolutionary leader's wife's death. But because I, I mean that is a beautifully like composed shot of her falling to the ground. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, that's. Uh, but again, and if the credits happened before that shot, and then the end credits happened after that shot, yep. I'd be I'd be telling a different story about this film. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a 
two hours and 30 minutes of other crap that goes on around it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, and the here's the problem with describing the plot of Topaz is that uh, I'm, I'm, I need to use the IMDb for this one because Good there's call. a lot of shit that happens in this movie. Yeah. Um, now, and, and, and I will say this before I get into the plot. This movie reminds me of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in the respect that it I was has, thinking this was like a car novel, yeah, and, exact as I was watching it. Yeah, and it's and there's a situation in my head where I'm like, oh, I love getting involved in this. It's not great, but I love getting involved in it. It's kind of like a bad. It, you know what it is? Like, I mean, I don't think the Hobbit movies are bad, but I understand that they are not the Lord of the Rings. But I love living in the world of Middle Earth so much that I am willing to go along with it for as long as humanly possible. Um, and like, and you know, again, like, you know, we all have our different worlds that we're willing to forgive at certain points in that respect. Yeah. And with Topaz, it's a situation where I could seeing myself watching this when I had absolutely nothing else to watch, like, or like, or I was just needing a, a film where I'm not required to necessarily think in terms of cinematic, cinematic brilliance or technique and style. It's kind of like, no, I just want to watch an interesting spy movie. And the thing is, is that this this movie when it's interesting it becomes interesting and when then it's not it chooses to just be whatever it is if i ever find myself watching this movie again i've made serious wrong turns in my life <laughs> uh, let me break down the yeah, plot for you go for as, it. <laughs> as stated by imdb and this is actually a very good summation of it without having to go too much into plot a french intelligence agent becomes embroiled in the cold war politics First with uncovering the events leading up to the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and then back to France to break up an international Russian spy ring. Two different very big things. And also that French, what, what, how did they describe it? A French what? A French agent? intelligence agent. Yes, that French intelligence agent doesn't enter the film until minute 43. Yep. Um, and <laughs> we we again need to, I mean, now, now here's the thing, though. There... there <laughs> The opening of the film with the family that ends in the china shop, mm-hmm. very Hitchcockian, has a, has a good amount of suspense, and it's primarily because at this point we are not solely enveloped in the spy plot. The only thing that I the the, the biggest complaint that I had about that is the opening title, or the the um the super. Oh yes, yes the um the footage of uh, Soviet. Russia. I, I loved opening with all the footage of that. And so then Russia film opens you. There's this superimposition <laughs> that comes up that says one of the people in this crowd is not happy with like what's going on in Russia and they're going to defect. And they're and and then for the next 15 minutes, you see that happen. And it's like what asshat in the audience didn't understand that by the time the film was going on that they thought that they needed to add that because I can guarantee that was not in the script. I can guarantee that was not in the first cut. It's um so here's my take on it mm-hmm. and, and 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 I agree with you because it is kind of on the nose uh laying out something it's purely to, to, uncinematic it, it's it, purely no no you're it's all tell it's no ex- show and it's it's expositional to the point of establishing this otherwise very suspenseful scene mm-hmm. there's a part of me that goes back to our psycho trailer discussion 
where I kind of like that cheeky bullshit. (laughs) So I am a guilty party to allowing stuff like this to happen in cinema. When that stuff happens in movies today, guys, it's my fault because I'm asking for it. (laughs) um, It's the same reason why I don't understand why the Coen brothers made Hail Caesar because that movie was only made for me. Like it was made for absolutely (laughs) nobody else. It was never going to make its money back. Uh, Once Upon a Time Hollywood is a fluke because it happened to make a bunch of money, but it was also just made for me. So, you know, again, it's a situation where, yes, I know what he's doing and I understand what he's doing and it can frustrate me. But I because I'm a guilty party to this, I let it go. (laughs) And now and also because, again, I do really believe that that opening scene is a really good well-constructed suspense sequence. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. But it's ruined by... That the, exposition. <laughs> yeah, the exposition telling me exactly what's going on yeah. rather than just being like, who are these people? What's going on? It's so long without any dialogue and uh, you're totally attached to what's going on as... But I already know what's going on because yeah. I was just told now that that's what's up. It, it could be argued that this is him still doing his bomb under the table motif with, with using that. Um, I think, though, that that would be a mistake, and it is a mistake, to do that so early on in the movie mm-hmm. because that's usually set up for, at the very least, about 15, 20 minutes in when things are just still kind of getting going. So I think it's it's interesting to set it up that way, and yes, it doesn't really work, but as I, get, as I said, my the, the other side of me that's not necessarily a cinematic devotee i'm like oh cool right on he's he's just gonna put that he's just gonna put that right up at the front neat but like (laughs) but then again as you as you say like it just it does take away a lot of suspense and you know like the amount the, the the technique of suspense that hitchcock utilizes with the different techniques that he uses where whether it's putting that bond, bomb bomb under the table or having the idea that one person knows something that the other doesn't and then where does it come to a head you know it it can both work and it can also fail and we talked about it a little bit with um jamaica inn where that's a good setup for stuff to happen but it doesn't play off the way it should yeah um well, and i think topaz is riddled with it way too much riddled is perfect word for yeah. it because it's so much of this film feels like a film student trying to do hitchcock um and like not understanding what makes what makes hitchcock work but there's so much in this film that will two characters will be talking about the plan and what they're going to do and then they'll go to do the plan and then talk again about how the plan is going to work and exactly the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to sit back and watch it happen for 20 minutes. Yep. So there's no suspense uh, other than like, will they be able to pull it off or not? And it, uh, it's, I mean, so there's, there's a, um, an idea that I definitely learned about in film school. You learn about it in, in narrative work and creative writing, um, you learn about it a ton um, in my improv background, and it's this idea of come into a scene late and leave early, mm-hmm. and you cut out the transition stuff. Like you don't have scenes where someone is like driving up to the front of the building and then getting out of their car and going in the front door and then walking up the stairs mm-hmm. and then going down the hallway and then opening the door to the apartment and then walking into the apartment. You just go ahead and have them drive up to the front of the building and then have them walk in like the 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 audience understands that 
and 60% of this film is everything that I just talked about of like what you cut out. So, yeah, and and I and I, so I agree with you and I'm going to explain why I agree with you by disagreeing with you for a second. Hear okay. me out for a second. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is stuff that Hitchcock does though and has done in the past and would actually do an even frenzy that do work when he goes into that methodical step-by-step process. So he can show those like ancillary details and have it build up to something. Here's why you're correct. Topaz is 143 minutes long on this DVD slash Blu-ray version. Uh, now in the theaters, it was 127 minutes. I don't think that makes a difference because mm-hmm. as much as I will defend the movie, it is long. You are, you are in their world for a long time and there is a lot of fat that can be trimmed. And if I were to watch the theatrical cut, I don't even know if that would fully serve what needs to be trimmed. The problem, again, also is is that this particular story, which is based on a novel by Leon Uris, um, and it's closely based off of the 1962 Sapphire Affair, and it involved the head of a French intelligence agency in the United States, um, uh, and helping discover, you know, the offensive, uh, mis- uh, the offensive missile crisis position with Russia and Cuba, and so, so it's based partially on a true story. So there seems to be a, an idea in Hitchcock's head to do a true story movie of some kind of big importance mixed in with his normal workings of the spy genre. Yeah, there's you can you can feel that in it. There's there are a lot of cuts to newspaper headlines that mm-hmm. seems to be allusions to actual newspaper headlines that was like, hey, remember this thing that just happened in like recent history and yeah. this is topical and it's relevant. This is where the story is connecting to this aspect of history. There's a lot of that that's going on in this film. So you can feel that for sure. Which you can feel in films today that try to tackle a subject that is very fresh in people's heads. Um, you know, you, you mean, I think I think the most recent example, uh, I, I guess, would be Bombshell. Um, which I haven't seen mm. yet, no, but yeah. like, but it's an attempt to directly dramatize a situation that is like pr- relatively fresh in the uh, minds and ears of the public. And you know, like, I mean, I guess there's an extent of like some of the early films that tackled the subject of nine eleven have that uh, particular uh, like air of reminding you what's going on. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I think United ninety three might be the best example of how they did it because it was more about a single situation and not the broader aspect. But um, again, you know, it, it's it's trying to, when you're tackling a subject in the immediate history, there's no, there's no reflective period just yet. Um, and with Topaz, we're still in the middle of the Cold War in 1969 when this movie is released. Right. So there isn't a lot of room to, fully so it's 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 very reactionary in that respect yeah it's the film i mean based on essentially the last frame or last shot i should say is probably more correct seems to be like this is the underlying story of the cuban missile crisis yeah but the film has nothing to do with that yeah the film... You keep seeing it in headlines, but that's not what the story is about. It's not what the characters are interested in. That's not what Topaz is. That's not like that's not anything it, that's it... going on for the plot, for the characters, for the story, for anything. It's just like, oh, by the way, in, in, in an essence, the Cuban Missile Crisis is a MacGuffin in this movie. It's hmm. the thing that's driving some people, but it's not dictating all their actions. It's just it's important to them, but we as the audience don't care because we don't need to know. Any, yeah. we don't we don't I mean, need we don't need to know now. It's also have, probably my ignorance in terms of like where the stuff that goes on in the plot connects with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, but it's like 
Topaz is the MacGuffin. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is the, which, that is the primary MacGuffin. But like in a sense, the Cuban Missile Crisis itself is acting in that sense where it's like, yeah. well, it's clearly not important to us because we're not talking about it. Right. Right. Um, right. But you know, like I mean, the, the characters certainly don't talk about it. So it's it's maybe it's not a MacGuffin. Maybe it's just something else entirely. It's just a it's a backdrop that just is useless in that respect. Uh, the only reason it's important is because it it provides, I guess, context for what's going on. Um, yeah. But it doesn't function the way that it probably would today in a movie of that nature. Um, and again, there's there are moments in here where some stuff shines beautifully that are then undermined by the rest of the film because the movie ultimately is kind of about an infidelity. <laughs> and, a couple uh, of them. Yeah, a couple of them, and then just like you know, this just the way this French French operative is acting and behaving and. He doesn't really have an arc. He doesn't really have any real progression. Like no, I, I mean, God, uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's a little bit difficult to talk about the arc just because of the um, multiple endings. Yeah. Um, and but the one that was settled on, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, I abhor. Because it essentially, like, you watch what ends up becoming the main character, finally, once he gets introduced, mm -hmm. in a really also horribly clunky way, which I would love to talk about. Um, but the film ends in your main character literally shrugging off the entire plot of the whole film. Yep. And announcing, well, that's the end of Topaz. Yeah. It's, and now, here, I, I agree, because it does, it, it does trivialize the one hour or 143 minutes that we spent in this story. There's another cheeky part of me that likes that because it's talking about like, this is just another experience for them in the series of ongoing experiences in the spy world. But that's strictly, uh, that's strictly adherent in my mind only to the fact that it is because I'm aware that they're spies and this is government secrets and stuff like that, that I'm just like, Oh, that's interesting that they would play this off as just another thing that happens at the office. But it doesn't work for this movie. The ending, yeah. as you said, trivializes the whole affair when we've seen murder, we've seen torture, torture. It just it, we've we've seen a lot of different stuff. Going, we've seen like higher ups in government betraying their government. Mm -hmm. Like there, the stakes are high until they're suddenly not important to the characters. So it's kind of just like, oh, that stakes high, but but yeah, but that I gotta talk to my wife. So like. The stakes don't match their ability to react to them. No, and yeah. it's the entire the entire climax. It, we are told, and that's the other thing too, is that we are shown actually very little in this film. Yeah, it is a lot of telling. This is important. This is what we're gonna do. This is what's gonna go on. This is my. This is what I'm gonna try to like execute by the time I'm done at this particular point. Yeah, and then you see like, does it work or does it not work? And then it's on to the next scene where you're told the next thing that's going to happen. But we're told that everything is leading up to this huge meeting that is supposed to be super suspenseful. And then it's not suspenseful because they just ask a character to walk out and then the movie's over. Right. And again, like it, it and it, it, what's interesting with about that, because you because you are dealing with such exposition heavy material, you know who the writer of this film is, right? Samuel Taylor. Which the guy is who wrote wild. He wrote Vertigo. Right. He wrote Sabrina. Like the, the, he, he wrote other things too, but mm -hmm. like Vertigo 
is a strictly cinematic film and yeah. the story that is written for that. Like, I mean, now granted, yes, Vertigo is also a whole other discussion, and I did just book that episode. Sweet. Um, yeah, it it'll be interesting because it's with a it'll be with a new guest. Nice. Um, but uh, the uh, but Vertigo is a is a film, regardless of what your feeling is about it in the modern context, that is a purely cinematic film driven by imagery. And supported by a script that understands that it's a movie. Well, I think from what I read about this film is that actually they entered production with not a complete script. And the script was being finished literally the day that they were filming those scenes. Yeah. And, I, and that is beyond apparent because it like it reminds me of, uh, you know, a thing that you find out about um, and on Terminator 2 at the end of one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger anecdotes is uh after the t-800 has been beat to shit by the t-1000 and he rides the huge um gear up and shoots the t-1000 off the hits you know shoots the thing into him and gets rid of him for a second and he's stumbling along and 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 james cameron's direction to arnold schwarzenegger was like i want you to look like just like all you want is a vacation <laughs> and arnold's big like actor decision was like how about i say that what if i just say like oh i need, I need a vacation, vacation. <laughs> and that that is what it seems like so much of the scripting decisions of that is like, okay, here's what we want to convey in the scene. Well, what if and I here's just what say we it? need to happen? It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, what if we just tell them that that's what's about to happen? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Action. And and there's a part of me, and again, you're right. Like, I mean, things are being rewritten, like, or and just written themselves right before they start filming. The the technical completed version of this is done by Arthur Lorenz, um, who had, amongst other things, written Rope. So, you know. When you have Arthur Lorenz coming in to finish the script, you'd think that it maybe it'd be in a more polished position. But I think that the truth is, is that this particular story was always going to be detrimental to Hitchcock because it sounds like the novel is probably heavy with exposition, if that's the case, because it's having to explain the detailed lives of a spy or a French agent or a revolutionary that, that it just doesn't coalesce properly. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you, though, my favorite sequence in this movie has to do with meeting the revolutionary for the first time in the hotel and the incidents that happen inside and outside that hotel. I think it's a beautiful setup for, for some suspense. And in the case of me liking the film, I've latched onto the characters enough that I enjoy watching them that I'm willing to go down that rabbit hole. I would love to take that sequence and re-edit it to a third of its length into a version that I would love. Yeah. I think if you cut from the silent scene in the flower shop mm -hmm. to the hallway. Yeah. You might be onto an interesting scene. I do find it interesting that it lingers as much as it does in the lobby and outside the streets. Um I kind of wish it didn't, but I just know there's no new information. No, because even like we know what we know what our main characters trying to accomplish before they go to the flower shop to get help. Right. And then he goes to the flower shop to get help. And there's what's supposed to be a cheeky scene, like the scene on the Hill in rear window, or I'm sorry, in torn curtain that works where you can't hear what the characters are saying and they're discussing it. Um, and it works in torn curtain because there's some emotion involved and there's history with these characters. Right. And Topaz, it absolutely doesn't work because we know exactly what's being said and it lingers for way too long. Yeah. And then we go and we watch that same conversation happen with another character 
and it's linger, linger, linger. Yeah. And then we go upstairs and we watch another conversation. Linger, linger, linger. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's five steps mm-hmm. when all I need is one. Yep. And like cut to the chase. Because once we get to the hotel, inside the hotel room, it becomes a, a nice pot right. boiling. And now bit. we have some personality to see. Yeah. Like the, we, we introduce, um, uh, what is that character? Rico Parra. Rico Parra, yeah. This, this you know, who's <laughs> played by John Vernon, who I know from all of his awesome 80s uh, films i i remember him solely as the man who was trying to um destroy john belushi in animal house oh see i know him uh, as yes. mr big from i'm gonna get you sucker oh no he, and well, killer yeah, clowns that, from outer space yes john vernon was and curtains yes john john vernon by the way we should mention john vernon versatile actor legendary actor as you discussed yep. within the films you mentioned he was the mayor in dirty harry <laughs> he's Fletcher in the Outlaw Josie Wales, but as I said, his attempts to ruin the lives of the people at Delta House uh, as Dean Wormer will always be remembered because for not for him, we do not have the stereotype of the stuck up Dean that was played off of so beautifully in that Simpsons episode where suddenly he's not stuck up, (laughs) but Homer thinks that the Dean has to be stuck up. Um, I just wanted to mention that because I forgot. Yeah, he's John Vernon. And he's and playing in, a he's playing yeah. Cuban, which in is Topaz, very weird. He's in brown face. Yeah, that's so. that's another thing we have to discuss is that uh, certain people are cast that probably shouldn't be cast. And again, like I, because again, once we get inside that, we're dealing with his personality. We're dealing with with the with the spy's personality. We're dealing with everybody in there and people finding out stuff before it's too late. When he's finally out of the hotel, and then that conflict in the street. Mm-hmm. There's fun moments of filmmaking in there. There's good composition, good setup, and interesting execution of blocking. But it does, as you said, it doesn't need to linger as long as it does. Yeah, if you've lulled me to sleep by the time that happens, then I'm not awake to, like, experience it. Because then suddenly when it gets exciting, it's it's too little too late in that respect. Right, because, I mean, it's like the, the, the scene in the hallway... Leading up to the third time we're going to hear about the plot to get the information from uh, Rico Parra. Yeah. Is this almost interesting setup to Rico Parra of mm-hmm. like people trying to get in the room and his main guard not allowing anyone. And there's this like sort of like big bad guy setup where he's off screen and we hear people talk about him or, he, or we hear him yelling at people that that sets up this domineering person we're about to go see. Mm hmm. But I've just seen what is going to happen once we get in that room, talked about for the second time, and that that setup for his character happens in a transition to the third time we're going to hear what's going to happen in that room. Yeah. So by the time we get to the room, I don't care who's in there. I'm just like, can I see – can we get that information already? Yeah. That it, it, it ruins the suspense of, of even being in the room finally because you're just like, oh, my God. Do it already. Yeah, when you withhold too much, it becomes frustrating rather than rather than playful. I want to point out though, the guy who sneaks in, Dubois, is played by Roscoe Lee Brown, just like a noted actor, theater actor primarily, but also was film actor. Just he crushes it in his scenes, regardless of how much is being drawn out. Like he is a solid performer in that in that moment, and it I find it fascinating because like amongst the people in this cast who are relatively unknown, like he stands out the most to me. Like John Vernon mm. does, obviously, because of what he's doing. But yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, Roscoe Lee Brown, I think he does. A, he does well in the Hitchcock 
realm like because he he knows his blocking because of theater training so he understands where to move and what to do so it's yeah he move he moves in a way that i don't think the other actors do specifically and it's just that's why amongst the things that's the scene that stands out for me not even the most hitchcockian moment which is um which is uh rico para's mistress falling to the floor after he shot her yeah like that just it feels as if like that it feels like it's out of a different movie. Yeah. And it just, but it, whereas the hotel scene feels much more in line with Hitchcock. It's just, as you said, it's just drawn out way too long. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the alternate endings. Yeah. There was multiple endings uh, tested for this film. This movie was tested to death yeah. before it finally got released. And finally it just came down to compromises. Like it just doesn't, nothing ever was going to satisfy anybody. No. Like, and the, if you watch that appreciation thing by Leonard Maltin, he shows you the reaction cards. And Which are brutal. Yeah. You think I'm being harsh on this film. Oh, yeah. Audiences of the 70s or the 69 and 70s hated this movie. Like it, it, it was and thus why it's a bomb. It's a it's a utter fucking bomb for Hitchcock. It, like it, and when I say that, it's that it just it breaks even on its rental. That's that's a bomb. That's just a bomb for him. And critically, it's torn apart. It's just the people who even liked it are probably among my, my level where I have mixed feelings on it. I think it, it, it at the end of the day, I think it is a very hard film to um, defend on its merits. I think that it's it is possible to say, Meh, like, yes, this doesn't work because I like it or, I, you know, the characters are interesting or whatever. But actually, like approaching the film in a in a black and white sort of nature on its own, I, there's there's so much in it that's just so hard to defend because so much of it doesn't um, congeal, mm-hmm. um, or where it does congeal, it actually sets up a hurdle for itself. And I, you know, I mean, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, even the introduction of our main character, ha- it feels like a f- film, like a film student's introduction to a character of like, oh a really kind of fun way to introduce a character would be to have two characters talking about this character before we ever find out about them. So we're kind of understanding what it is, Yeah. but it is so clunky and it's just like, Oh, we're, we're going to have this meeting with this person. I don't like them. They're disrespectful. Yeah. But here's, let me do a quick little rundown their CV of all of their accomplishments and how great they are. And then put the little tag on it. But like, yeah, but I wish he was more respectful. Yep. And then like in walks in, the like Devereaux, yeah. Devereaux yeah. which is just like this giant walking wonder bread <laughs> <laughs> loaf who just has caked on makeup. There's not a lot of inflection going on in this performance and the lines might be cheeky, but they're not or disrespectful or combative or whatever it is irreverent to authority but they're not delivered in any sort of a convincing manner. And then it's like, oh, this is who's going to take us through the next five hours of this film? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I just, yeah. It's Frederick Stafford, by the way, and uh, he's all over spy films of Europe. So it's almost like he's just kind of tailor-made for this role. And so he's kind of just phoning it in. Except I don't buy him as French. Oh, yeah. Uh, but... You know, um, <laughs> also, I mean, I just like, I think that... Uh, I, I really am I really love the sentiment of Paul Thomas Anderson uh not saying that you hate a film or that a film is bad 
and instead using the language like this film doesn't work for me mm-hmm. uh topaz really like s- stresses my attempt to to just say this film doesn't work for me because right. just so much of it yeah is uh is working against that statement yes yeah I mean, I think that I, I think that I can say that the film works for me, but it's only because I've been, I've been in a position where, uh, as you said, some of the things that you mentioned that are indeed frustrating. I there's that other part of my psyche that's just like, oh, okay, I'm I'm on board. Let's just see where this goes. Like my my natural curiosity kind of goes toward it, and also as I said with the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy remark, I sometimes like a convoluted thriller. <laughs> where I'm not always sure of everything or something's being overexplained to me to death where I'm just like, okay, cool. I'm in this world right now. I'm just going to sit with it. I understand that not everybody's willing to do that. It sounds like Topaz has you in Stockholm syndrome, Zach. It is kind of hearing. It it, it is very much. (laughs) Leonard Maltin and I are trapped like beauty and the beast in, in beast castle. And you know, like um, I think ultimately it's just that there is, there is a part of me that feels like it's interesting for him to try to do something that he hasn't really come close to since Foreign Correspondent, but the difference is, is that Foreign Correspondent moves at a clip and doesn't overdrown itself in exposition. This film does exactly the opposite. Yeah. But they're both hitting on the real-world event area. There's not an attempt to necessarily do a slick spy thriller. Like, that's the thing. Like, it is a spy movie but it's not trying to be a North by Northwest like Torn Curtain was trying to be a North by right, Northwest. Right, no, and and I think that it's, you know, Hitchcock also said that this film was an experiment for him in, in a couple different areas, and I applaud that. In the same way, you know, what we talked about in the in the Psycho podcast with um, um, Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho yeah. is from, again, I haven't seen it since then, or I haven't seen it <laughs> at all, um, but... I applaud the idea of a filmmaker saying, I'm just going to throw it all against the wall. I'm going to put myself into this and see what happens, even if it's a complete and total miss. I'm not sad that I watched Topaz. I just don't ever care to see it again. And and I think that it's it's worth talking about in all the areas that it doesn't. Right. um, That it it doesn't work. But I, I... I wasn't being hyperbolic when when I was watching it. I did feel insulted because there yeah. were just oh yeah, the, there things, are some places where it's just like I want to go downstairs. Yeah, exactly. Walk out of the door again. Walk for, down the stairs. Walk down the stairs. And walk for, down the stairs. <laughs> walk down the stairs. <laughs> okay, tumble it. Oh no, walk down the stairs. Walk yep. down the stairs. I'm not going to tumble. It's going to be fine. <laughs> but I think yeah, and and again, like even in my defense of it, I'm just like okay, yeah, but like if I'm going to rewatch Topaz, I got to set aside time. I just got to be ready to deal with this. Mm-hmm. But like once I'm into it, I find myself going like, oh, okay, cool. Right on. We're in Topaz land today. Neat. But again, is it a Hitchcock film I watch in mass? No. Actually, no that's, means. that's a good point. It might be a different experience for me now knowing what to expect. Yeah. But I, while watching it, I do remember getting up to go to the restroom one point and pausing it. And this I mean, timeline-wise, it was probably half an hour after being introduced to Devereaux. Yeah. And I looked at the timeline that popped up on the Universal Blu-ray, which I wish they would not do that because I know story structure so well. I know what's going on in the story because of it. Yeah. But I was just like, I'm only halfway through this film. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, So I think that like knowing what I'm in for now might make it a little bit of a different experience in terms of being able to like, Okay, now that I know that I'm going to hear this plot point five times in a row, 
let me see what I can what else is there to yeah. be offered. Yeah, and and there is a statement by Hitchcock um, that's repeated in the Torn Curtain uh, featurette, which is you know you, you should always watch a film more than once, uh, and I think with Topaz. An argument be, could be made that if you watch it again, maybe it'll have a different effect. But understandably, when you watch Topaz the first time, you are left kind of like, well, I don't see myself watching that again. And yet I've done it. <laughs> and hence why I have a better uh, grasp on enjoying it for the most part. Again, you're talking to a guy who's been able to kind of throw himself into weird nonsense visually over the years. So I think in a respect that me being a fan of topaz puts me into a, a rare realm that shouldn't exist and should probably be burned at the stake but <laughs> that being said please don't burn me at the stake no, no, um, there's room for everyone yeah but um regardless this film yes. it just it blows up and it just doesn't it, it puts hitchcock in an interesting position and then as we see the last two films he makes frenzy and family plot he goes back to familiar tropes, uh, family plot more so. But in the case of Frenzy, he is able to experiment again. And Frenzy is where he comes the closest to hitting the new wave or the uh, 70s mark, where he's able to push the visual boundaries. And uh, when I talked about Frenzy with Jack Hanley, the the thing that came across is that whatever we would have gotten out of his Kaleidoscope project probably ended up the energy to that probably ended up in frenzy <laughs> and in topaz i think the experiment is more of just trying to stretch out his own genre that he helped establish which is the spy which is the spy film pre james bond yeah and while also trying to emaciate himself into the jet setting world of james bond because this movie does jet set even though it does it slowly it's moving from place to place uh, there's a lot of locations, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of technology. There's a lot of spy tech in it um, and, you know, kind of kitschiness in that. And there's, like, multiple Q-ish characters mm -hmm. of, like, here's your little device and here's how to use it and yeah, and that sort of thing. But it doesn't – but as, as said before, like, it just misses the mark of – it could be so fascinating. And, I, and I've and i never seen the 127-minute uh, the, the theatrical cut. Um, I'd be curious to see what they trimmed out, like like, and how it operates to tell the story itself. I have to imagine it might end up being worse somehow. Yeah, I think from the little snippets of it that you can see in Leonard Maltin's little apology film yeah. for it, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like they cut out a lot of the stuff that I was, you know, not exaggerating about. Of like, I want to go downstairs, and then you watch someone walk down three flights of stairs. It's and like, they, oh, we'll only watch them walk down the first part of one and then the last part of the third. Right. Is that if they just cut out that much stuff and and that would probably take you from 127 or from 144 to 127 minutes. That would get you that because I'm not exaggerating. There's that much of that in this film. Yeah. There's so much of watching characters go from point A to point B. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it again, it's it's an experiment. I don't think it uh, fully pans out. And there's a way to make it work, but again, you've got you've got a, a main character versus protagonist issue as well as like all three of these films that we're discussing today have a plot problem and yeah. that the plot is the most important thing. Yeah. You're going to watch this happen and then you're going to watch this happen, you're going to watch this happen and you don't have the same character 
guiding you through those. You don't have the same character guiding all of those plot points, and you don't have an emotional um, attachment point to any of it. Yeah, and this which, film suffers the most from that. Which, by the way, we talked about, and I guess Devereaux is your POV, and he's mostly consistent, but... He doesn't come in until a third yeah. of the way through the film. That's and the, at that that's point, the big issue. <laughs> you don't know, you don't understand that he's the main character yet because yeah. even the MacGuffin was introduced like 20 minutes before he comes on stage of like, what is Topaz? Yeah, what is Topaz? What? Why, why is this defector? Why well, does any of this stuff matter? More to the point, like why is the defector given so much time up front before we even meet Devereaux? And, you know, again, you're... You, you, if you ke- if you kept it more to Devro and sped up the first thirty to forty five minutes of the film, um, I would say don't lose the opening suspense scene. Uh, only because I do like the way that's technically shot. But if you had to lose it, okay, start it with just a defection. You cut out a little bit. It may make Devro's transition a little easier. Mm-hmm. But again. You also should establish Devereaux from the get-go. Oh, I would to... start the film with Devereaux in Cuba. Yeah. And I would see his relationship with the character out there. And then reveal um, that he has a wife. With Juanita. Yeah, Juanita, uh, yeah. Played by Karen Dorr. Yeah. Uh, she, was, she was also great, but just yeah ancillary. But yeah, I would start out with them and then see him come home and like, oh, he's got a wife. Yeah. So that I have some emotional connection to what's going on yeah. there. And I'm privy to that information before the wife is privy to it, as opposed to me finding out that he's got some other lady in Cuba with a quasi accusation, quasi question coming from the wife that I don't know whether it's true or not until he's in Cuba and they kiss. I don't even know when they're standing on the doorstep, like exchanging eyes at each other. It's like, yeah. oh, maybe she just likes him, but she's just an asset to him. And like, oh, no, they kiss. Oh, I guess the wife was right. Okay, and I the, guess the, that's interesting. Yeah, and then the wife and the wife character could potentially be more fascinating within that respect in a similar way to where on Strangers on a Train, you know, you meet the ex-wife and you don't meet the senator's daughter for a little bit in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, it never, I mean, you talk to her over the phone and whatnot, but, like, you really don't meet her until after the uh, – the soon-to-be-divorced wife is uh, is murdered in *Strangers on a Train* in the, at the far, at the carnival. And so. the wife is another complete and total lost opportunity. Is like Hitchcock literally breaks his own rule, yeah, and breaks the famous rule of if you show a gun on the mantle, by the end of the film it needs to be fired, yeah. And we establish that the wife used to be a a, a soldier, yeah, and. That never comes to fruition, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Even in the original ending for it, there's a version of that that I'm like, why wasn't that thought of that it's not the Russians that kill Topaz? Yeah. And it's it, uh, her Yeah. that she decides to choose her husband over the person that she's having the affair with. Yeah. But it's like, nope, not even that. She's just she's chilling. In, she's just inactive. Yeah. She's just pretty inactive. She's kind of used whenever it's convenient for other people. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The Topaz, it's it's a weird, uh, close to the penultimate cliff that Hitchcock falls off of. He does get back up with Top uh, with Frenzy, and then uh, concludes with Family Plot, which is just a nice little bow on on a career. One thing I do have to thank Topaz for, though, is that I'm sure it did not play a small part in Tarantino's decision to only make ten films. So thank you, Hitchcock, for doing your failed experiment with Topaz 
and maybe us having an ending insight for Tarantino films. You're welcome. But could you tell him to stop shooting so many pictures of fucking feet? <laughs> I don't even like seeing my own feet. Why would I want to see Margot Robbie's feet? Why would I want to see Uma Thurman's feet? Right after you stop casting blondes. You, you go fuck yourself, Marshall. I don't have to answer to you. I'm a ghost. I don't have to answer to you. I'm beyond your realm. Fair enough. Ooh. <laughs> Such an indignant ghost, this Hitchcock. The silhouette speaks. But so we just talked about three failures. <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. Or lost opportunities at the very least. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Uh, but the, uh, I think the takeaway for me, you know, we. I think the big part of it, and it goes back to that first question at the beginning of the episode, which is like, you know, how do you, how do you sustain a long career and yet have as many failures as you do successes or even some that kind of outrank that in the case of Hitchcock, thankfully the masterpieces outweigh the bad ones, but you know, it's amazing that he sustained this. And on the opposite end, someone like a contemporary heads like Orson Welles never really got a chance beyond the first two films and always kind of struggled in that respect. Yeah. So it's like, and consequently, you know, Citizen Kane and even Magnificent Ambersons are on a ton of lists, but somebody like Orson Welles doesn't get the second chances that Hitchcock does. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see how even the failures of Hitchcock never brought him down. Partially, I think because of what we talked about, which is his image was so solidified with the TV show and, all of his successes prior to that. And ultimately Hitchcock knew how to make a commercial movie compared to Orson Welles. But right. You know, when you talk about directors of this age and era who, you know, they make a commercial film like Hitchcock can with their own sense of art, but it just doesn't do enough. So they're kind of ousted out the door. Well, I also think, and I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I mean this in the kindest way possible and not to take anything away from Hitchcock, but I'm an who idiot I, who I love, <laughs> but also Hitchcock, was not a like to the letter auteur the same way that um Orson Welles is yeah. or was um and Hitchcock understood the power and necessity of collaboration yeah um and I don't think that oh Orson Welles did not know the meaning of that word no 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 <laughs> no not at all and and I think that I mean as far as like Citizen Kane is concerned no god why would you want anyone else in any of those roles than Orson Welles yeah but when you talk about moving projects forward and growing with projects and um, and that sort of thing, if you put yourself in the position of power in so many different areas and the film is resting on you and you don't have any support under you, then the films don't happen or they yeah. you know, oh, yeah. fall which, under its own the, – they, they cripple under their own weight. Which is an evidence if you watch uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. That's uh, very apparent. Oh, I, God, I, yes. I love that film because it's, uh, it's a redemption for Orson Welles, but it doesn't excuse him either. Right. Uh, and, but, and in the case of Hitchcock, I feel like uh, you're correct. He did know the art of collaboration, which actually is what makes Torn Curtain and Topaz frustrating and sad because Torn Curtain is the first time he's working without a core group of people outside of Alma, mm -hmm. uh, cause Alma's still there and Topaz, it's only Alma. I mean, he has Samuel Taylor, but even that's incomplete and he has to go to Arthur Lorenz, who is another, another helping hand but he's kind of left fed to the wolves on it and the only person he's working with is john forsyth so as as good as the non-actors i feel are in topaz it's just or non-stars 
they just don't pop the same way as stars do. Like, I mean, we even we talked about Paul Newman and Julie Andrews are great in Torn Curtain, even though they're not working well together per se, and it just doesn't always fit the overall thing because it's missing the mark. Right. But they do pop in a way that the people in Topaz don't. Yes. Like, I, I mean, it, it certainly, in a sense, Topaz feels more independent than anything else, and that's like both in that's a that's a detriment to it. Yeah, well I think that it's it's also when you have a long career just in terms of your your question about how to sustain that and what to focus on is I don't I don't like the idea of expectations of any artist being either meeting the bar that was set by past successes or exceeding it continually mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. I don't like that expectation. I, I think that's unfair. Yeah. I, um and I do like the idea, as I've said in the past, of people, you know, putting it all out there and, and trying something different and experimenting. I think that's important. Um, but the detriment or the, the, the downside is that, um, you know, my cheeky way of saying it is we call it the film business, but it really should be called the business of film because business always comes first. Yeah. And if you don't have a team in place that can take care of the other integral parts of making a film a complete entity then you're left then you're left without that if yeah. you want to focus on one thing like if if Hitchcock wants to try his hand at whatever it is whether it's you know playing with color to tell your story or playing with non-actors or playing in the gadget James Bond thing and you don't have the rest of the team there to support you with mm -hmm. story structure and character and and the the marriage between those things to introduce the plot to an audience, then your film will fall short and be clunky and be hated, yeah. um, or it has a high opportunity for that kind of thing. So, it's they're they're interesting lessons, um, in the importance of like of film is by nature collaboration. Yeah. Um, and if you don't if you don't have that support structure, then yeah. you're and, risking a lot. And again, like more than you normally would be which is already a huge risk absolutely yeah. you're you're correct because that collaboration like i mean it doesn't matter how many of his team members from the past are still there the it's not functioning the same way it used to number one and yeah. the collaboration like nobody seems to be fully sure that this is the right project to be doing at the time or to even be doing period and that 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 you just said it yeah. that hit the nail on the head is that i think that um Film, I mean, I don't know. Film's my world, so it's the thing that I can speak to. Um, but I feel like if you can ever be doing anything other than film, then you shouldn't be doing film. Yeah. And it is it is a weird arena to turn into uh, a journeyman-like discipline where it's like, I'm just going to do this film and I'm just going to do this film and I'm just going to do this film, especially when you're a director. Yeah. Especially when you are a director with as much control over a project like Hitchcock had yeah where if you're bored then don't make the film right now yeah wait until you are excited about something and and actually excited about it rather than I'm gonna try and experiment because I'm bored those are two actually different things funny you should say that because kaleidoscope was the project that he was trying to get done and that couldn't get done so he kind of just settled into this ah and that's 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 frustrating you know, and that is and, a tale as old as time as far yeah. as Hollywood goes. And there's uh, a huge project a director's working on and super excited about, and it gets delayed or gets pushed back again or goes in a turnaround, and they fall into something else that just kind of ends up being like, meh. Yep. And 
within that, you know, we talked about, you know, making a film in a changing time with Torn Curtain. Mm. Topaz is definitely that because <clears throat> in addition to everything we've talked about with Topaz and its problems, it's very old-fashioned by comparison to something like Easy Rider, which comes out the same year. Oh, my gosh. Oh Stark my contrast, my friend. Stark contrast. Yeah, because Topaz is still playing with, like, <coughs> allusions to deaths happening off-screen yep. type stuff, like 40s-level yeah, character the, deaths. Even, even the... Um, uh, even the death of Juanita is done like, like you. It's off screen. You just see her kind of react and then fall to the ground. Now there is blood, eventually. Yeah, and it, and actually, I I like the the way it kind of seeps out slowly. I, I don't know. It just it looks yeah. like a beautiful painting. Oh yeah, no 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 no. I mean, but it's like, but it you... just doesn't work today or the, in that in that day. Right. I think there are like two or three shots of her post being shot before there is blood. Yeah. And it's yeah. And and again, like again, as I said, Easy Rider comes out this same year, and that is fucking orgies and drugs and Jack Nicholson, like the three things you need for a party. And so <laughs> the, the 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 bar is too high for Hitch at that point, at least in the American arena. And it's and it's actually interesting when he goes over to Fran to Britain to make Frenzy. It's almost kind of like he was let off a leash that he uh, was put on by Torn Curtain and Topaz. Because Frenzy, if you've watched it, and if you haven't watched it out there, go watch it. Um, again, it's it's unsettling, but it's, uh, I guess, tame by today's comparison. But it pushes a lot of boundaries. There's, a, there's nudity in a Hitchcock movie for the first time in Frenzy. Uh, there's a lot of different things being played into. And uh, while still maintaining his tropes, yeah, uh, it's certainly more violent than Psycho is. Well, and, I'm always very interested in hindsight to watch how directors react to the reaction of their previous films. Um, in contemporary times, um, Aronofsky is an amazing case study of what he's attempting with a given film, how it's received, and then how he spins either in control or out of control based on that reaction. Yeah. And I think that looking at these films with, um, with Hitchcock, is is very similar in terms of you know seeing what happened with Marnie and then his interaction with the studio and working with two gigantic stars at the time. I mean, this is Paul Newman and at Ju the height of Paul Newman and yep. Julie Andrews coming off of Mary Poppins, and his reaction to that is like, "I'm never working with stars again." Yeah, like no. And so he flies into Topaz, mm -hmm. and Topaz is like quintessentially topaz yeah. it is the it is an epitomal topaz film and his reaction to that is like i'm doing frenzy which doesn't have stars i mean they're stars but they're not like big marquee names right and uh family plots the same i mean i think bruce dern's a marquee name in my heart but he wasn't a marquee name. bruce dern's a badass i mean bruce dern should have had his name in fucking lights all the time and they also have karen black who's you know just She's Karen Black. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for for full details, see House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> it's weird because she had a obviously a brilliant career outside of that, but I always go back to a House of a Thousand Corpses because that was the first time I saw her in a movie. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's you're right because he reacts. He did that also with his masterpieces because he does North by Northwest, and mm -hmm. he looks at the reaction to that and he goes like. Okay, I'm gonna fuck with him now. Yeah, well, <laughs> Psycho, Psycho again was yeah. a huge. Yeah, I'm yeah, just it, saying like it, no. It ups it upends that, and then like his reaction to Psycho was like, well, I can maybe go even weirder, and that's the birds, and then 
but the birds is like, oh, that, now they expect monster movies out of me. I'm, I'm going to go make this other kind of monster movie over here. <laughs> so, you know, I, again, like it, he's a very fascinating director in the respect that he'll react. He does react to the film before him. Uh, not always as intensely as he does in the later years. Like yeah, in the well, earlier years, it's a little different. It's and it. I I think that again, I'll you know pulling pulling my jokes, uh, my jabs at Tarantino. I think that that's one of the things that Tarantino looks at is in terms of like a a quote unquote aging director that becomes more becomes so comfortable in their creative freedoms yeah. that they become married to the structure of the studio system and the business of film in a way that is completely shackling. And they're constantly trying to live up to their own ego in their head of, I'm not actually shackled. So I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Not because my instincts are telling me to do it. Not because my genius as a craftsperson is telling me to do it, but because I, I, damn it, I'm not going to be pigeonholed or I'm not going to let this person tell me this or I'm not going to let the audience tell me this. Right. And once you get to that place where you are reactive only to your audience, that's when stuff can, you can really be steered in the wrong direction in a right. lot of ways. And actually within the Tarantino motif, like, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Tarantino, obviously, but I'm not, I'm not unaware of the fact that the the last three films in Tarantino's oeuvre are uh, like, it, it's not a, it, it's just, th there's a change between Django to hateful eight and a change from hateful eight to once upon a time in Hollywood. And more and more you see that there are, there is some comfortability and therefore predictability that comes from that. Um, I mm -hmm. think out of all of them, hateful eight's the most surprising if I was going to be honest with myself, um, I think the, the most surprising thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if we're talking about the consistency of Tarantino's work, is that I wasn't expecting it to be a hangout movie. And I'm glad it was a hangout movie because I missed that out of him. Um, that being said, though, you know, it, you're right. Like, there is a comfortability factor that even he's recognizing, which maybe is why he's, you know, throwing out the 10 films and I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, whereas you have somebody like Spielberg and Scorsese who I think are very much in their later Hitchcock periods where not everything's hitting, but once in a while, I mean, I think they get out more consistent successes than failures compared to Hitchcock um, in the later years. But they also, if you look, they still have their team surrounding them. Yep. That's true. I mean, Scorsese still got Schumacher in his back pocket um, and Spielberg's got um, Janish and, um, and his entire Amblin. Yeah, behind exactly. Him and, and he can like, you know, I just saw the post, uh, I like recently. The post. I, like the, I post like the post too, and I love the story of the post. Is that the, the post happened? It sounds like very similarly to how War of the Worlds happened. Yeah. It was like, oh, I've got a little bit of time in my schedule. Can we make this in eight weeks? Okay, cool. Like, and let's he, make this happen. And he did. And they did. Yeah. And and it's just like, here's what I'm interested in this story, and so he jumps into it, and he knows where he can be, you know, loose and fire from the hip, and he knows where he needs to be structured, and. And that's like it's it's Spielberg having fun doing Spielberg stuff, but he has a lot of support structures around him. Yeah, that protect that Spielberginess. Yeah, I think that it's funny because I think I still haven't seen the BFG, but um, James know. tells me that the BFG is a big divergence from that. So I'd be curious to watch it and then kind of figure out like, well, who on the team, other than the obvious players, is not around to help out with this? 
Um, I mean, but I again, like, and I, I like what you said because when he can shoot from the hip, you know, you get something that's different and unexpected from him, like a bridge of spies, which is it's not that it's different so much as just like it, it's a very it's a big step up from any other time he's tackled subjects similar to this, where it it, it draws itself out. It's a Cold War thriller in that mm. in that movie is, and you know, with Hitchcock, I think with with what we've learned with him shooting in the from the hip with Topaz, is that. It's sad in two ways because, one, that collaboration, as you said, is not there. It's sadder on the second point, which is that it's not the same because there's key players are gone. Right. You don't have Tomasini. You don't have Herman. You don't have Burks. And you don't have the camaraderie anymore. And now it kind of feels like it's just Hitchcock living off of a legacy he built for himself. Yeah, which is tough. Yeah. and But... <laughs> we've talked about such depressing shit for nearly three hours. You are the three-hour... You are the Lord of the Rings of this oh, podcast. You are the apologies. Peter Jackson of the... We need to have CGI trees and <laughs> freaking orcs in this podcast. It's going to fucking rock. But well, And we shot this podcast in 48 frames a second. Too, uh, I, so. I know. I know. <laughs> in 3D. And now, and now Shamley Silhouette will become an Amazon TV series for that will be made for uh, $1.65 billion or whatever the fuck that price tag is. Um, I'm excited for it, though. I like some Lord of the Rings in my life. So um, just hope it's as fun as what I've been used to. <laughs> yes, there you go. I don't care what they do with it. I just hope it's fun. I just hope it. I'm just like, oh, cool. I want to watch this. Yeah. Um, because that's it seems how Game of Thrones is sold to me is like you'll like this because you like Lord of the Rings and I'm like I I don't think you know what I like, <laughs> um, uh, but anyway thank you Marshall again for coming down and oh, getting us back so on the Shamley track. Um, I and I know I want you back for the finale when we um uh when we do our top tens or top fives whatever the number ends up being, but you're not going to be done yet. I'm going to announce this in advance. You will be back to talk with us about another subject that is right up your alley and one that I am immensely fascinated in, which is uh, there's a fun fact and there's a little preview for you guys. This is like the television show. Like on next week's episode, you'll find out uh, Hitchcock made a 3D movie (laughs) (laughs) and uh, Marshall is a 3D uh, enthusiast. Uh, I'd call you an expert to a certain extent because there are very few of you out there. Um, (laughs) um, He has the 3D TV and everything in there is a 3D print with the new, um, I, I'm actually curious, like, just to tease people about your expertise. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the original 3D technology is kind of like a a, a, a glyphic um, a glyphic kind of situation. No, it? it's not. It actually they filmed uh, the same way they do modern 3D. It was two cameras side by side. Okay. And they actually did shoot uh, a left camera and a and a right camera, okay. and then it was actually projected in color. And polarized okay. the exact same way you can go to a movie theater and see uh, 3D now. It's okay. just um, the cheaper version of that. They would take those prints and they would do the anaglyph with the, the, the red and the blue. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of like a, a bastardization of the actual Hollywood 3D process, which was in color and masterfully done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then there you go. Like, so in that episode that you will hear, Marshall's going to school me <laughs> even further than he already <laughs> does. Um, I'm just the host here, guys. Like, I don't have to know every single thing. Um, it, this is a, uh, but we're going to talk about his 3D film, which is none other than Dial M for Murder, which is the first time he works with one Grace Kelly. And a lot, of, a lot of magic is born. I mean, we know she would go on to not catch the attention of Jimmy Stewart <laughs> in Rear Window. <laughs> 
It's because he didn't see her in 3D. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see, Hitch, that's the problem. We're, we're on the center rear window. This is the problem, Hitch. I can't fall in love with Lisa because she's not in 3D. Can you give me some of those fucking glasses? <laughs> Hitch! Hitch! <laughs> I love Stuart. I'm glad we brought him back, um, at least for a cameo here. Um, but until then, um, thank you, Marshall, again for coming down. My pleasure. Um, and we'll see you again for the Dial M for Murder episode and do a little bit of discussion about 3D technology and basically how Hitch worked with newer tech at the time. Um, but until then, you can find more about the Shamley Silhouette on realnerspodcast.com where you can find back episodes. You'll also find the articles, which will be coming back. Um, I just have to sit down and write them because writing articles is harder than uh, recording for three hours because I can think, which is opposed to actually constructing a piece of <laughs> literate uh, reading. I'm looking um, forward to reading them again. I, I, yeah, I, I'm excited to get back into them. Um, and then you can follow me at, at realnerdzack. Uh, and you can follow the Shamley Silhouette on Instagram at at Shamley Silhouette, uh, at the Shamley Silhouette. Uh, like I said, both on Instagram. Uh, but until next time, uh, good night.